Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, March the 9th, 843-661-0937. Morning, Cato. Good morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Ready for a little math test first thing this morning? Oh. Cato, okay. we're getting ever closer to um to your farewell. Yeah. Uh, any? I mean, are you preparing remarks? Are you thinking about a big speech? <laughs> no. Is there, is there some sort of a, a emotional... I don't know. Um, is there is there a heart string out there that you wish to pull upon as you head out of the exit door onto bigger and uh, more grand things? No. Okay, good deal. And we'll you're the only one on. that gives big speeches on this show. I don't give big speeches. No. <laughs> Four hour ones every day. Yeah, <laughs> to some degree you're right. Uh, yeah, try that on. Uh, somebody said all he does is host a radio show. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the seats here. We <laughs> do it for a day. It's that easy. Come I was try thinking it. about you know the the only story I can relate to that is when we did the sports show in the afternoon. Um, we used to do, I mean, we did a couple of hours in the morning, did an hour in the morning to begin with, then it went to a couple of hours and then we had a sports, uh, I taught Rev into becoming an ESPN affiliate, mm. uh, regretfully, uh, because they weren't <laughs> as woke then as they are now, but we did a morning show and then we did an afternoon show from four to six. Um, it began just in football season. So we didn't do it during the entire of the year or the entirety of the year. We just did it, uh, during the football season, but, um, one day I had to go somewhere. I can't remember. I mean, it was like I, I told Thomas Hunter is a former uh, football player at Clemson. Thomas, a friend of ours. And um, and MJ, the guy that hosts with the bad boy on our uh, ESPN show this morning and every morning. Um, I had to go somewhere to do something that I just couldn't reschedule. And I told Thomas and MJ I had to leave at about, you know, uh, from four to six. I had to leave at five. I get there the next day and Thomas Hunter said, and I quote, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> He's don't right. you ever do He's that right. again, man. I mean, I'm, I'm a co-pilot. <laughs> I don't want to be a pilot. I don't have any interest in being a pilot. Um, it's, it's a different animal. I mean, it's just, a, you got to drive a conversation. Hey, I'm, I'm well aware of that because we've had people ask when you've had a day off or vacation or you were, you were sick that one time, uh, a few months ago. Um, and people say, well, why don't you and Cato just do the show? I'm like, no way. But you could do it. I, I, no, I could Of not. course you could. Oh, let us play music. Yeah. <laughs> Might be able to fill the time, but uh, I don't think we'd keep it that interesting. Yeah, I don't know that we keep it that interesting. <laughs> <laughs> You're mighty kind, very kind uh, this morning. I want to go to a math problem. You ready? Um, I don't attend the meetings of Mensa as regularly as I once did. Mm. But occasionally I'll drop take in. away your card. Well, I mean, that's right. So, so to keep my card active as a member of Mensa, um, there's a certain requirement. Um, and I drop by every now and then. There's a um, there's something I was reading over the weekend, the Monty Hall math. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Monty Hall Monty math. Hall. Let's yeah. make a deal, Monty Let's Hall. Let's make a deal. Okay. Monty Hall math. Um, Marilyn um, Von Savant, I think was her name, Um Von Sant. Was it Von Sant or Von Savant? Anyway, she was a, um, a member of Mensa. Had the, um, at the time, the highest IQ ever recorded at 228 or something stupid like that. I mean, she just had a phenomenal IQ, um, gifted, blessed in, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the aptitudal sphere. So Marilyn Von Sant or Von Savant, I can't think of her name. But anyway, she um, 
someone asked her in her article, she has an article in the paper. I mean, I remember the old days, Ask Marilyn, and she was a member of Mensa. You may, you may be coming back a little bit to you now. Ask Marilyn. Um, Dear Abby. Remember the day, you know, Dear, Dear Abby. Abby. Billy Graham had a, um, a you know, kind of an, a, uh, I don't cotton. It's not an IP. Yeah, Q and A. There you go. On the uh, evangelical yeah, Christian, Louis Grizzard. Louis Grizzard. You're yeah. right. There, there you go. See, I'm thinking about the good old days yeah. of print media. That's right. Uh, when they existed and had a a relevant place on the uh, stage of disseminating information. But ask Marilyn. Someone said, "Hey, when Monty Hall says behind door number one, there's this. Behind door number two, there's that. Behind door number three, behind one of these doors is a brand new Ferrari." Beyond the other two, there aren't. And Rev would choose door number three. And Monty Hall would walk over to Rev and said, um, I'm going to show you what's behind door number one or two. And behind door number one was a billy goat. Should Rev change his mind? When Monty Hall says, are you sure you still want door number three? And 75 or 80% of the people did not change their mind. And Marilyn, the Mensa genius said they should have and she was scolded i mean she was excoriated for um offering up a i mean i'm talking about math professors at yale and and mit and harvard said maryland is apparently not as smart as um as you know the, the public considers her to be and after careful consideration and uh I, I guess mathematical and scientific deliberation it was decided that indeed maryland was right you should change your mind once Monty Hall shows you what's behind one of the other two existing doors. Okay. But, but this via math calculation. Well, it's, it's a simple theory, and, and once again, um, some math scholars apologize to Marilyn. I mean, after two or three months of um, careful consideration and studying, but here's the here's the um, in its simplest form, and, and and Marilyn and I understand this at a different <laughs> level, but I want to be um, courteous to our audience. Thank you so much. Well, I mean. I, you're welcome. Do enlighten um, us, please. You're welcome. <laughs> so, so the reason you are supposed to change your mind is when you choose, when Monty Hall says behind door number one, door number two, door number three, there's a Ferrari. Dave Baker, which door do you choose? And Dave Baker says, I choose door number three. You had a one in three chance of getting that right, two in three chance of getting it wrong. When Monty says, I'm going to show you what's behind door number one, and it's a goat. You want to change your mind, Dave Baker? When you change your mind, you're making a choice between one of two doors instead of one of three doors. Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to be right. But if you play it out over a thousand times, the mathematical odds of you getting it right if you change your mind is higher than the the mathematical odds of you getting it right the first time. You're kind of blowing my mind early in the morning, but I'm trying to think you're, you're basically your 33% chance versus your 50-50. And it's not exactly that. It doesn't correlate. I mean, Marilyn right. explains There's it. obviously I something. I mean, that, I understand the way Marilyn explains well, it, but I don't want to embarrass our listeners. Thanks. <laughs> Again, we appreciate that very I mean, that, much. Uh, I mean, we have this <laughs> connection. Keep it on our level. Well, I mean, uh, you, you know that. I yeah. mean, we have this, um, this relationship with our listeners that I don't want to insult. Uh, nor impugn. <laughs> so, um, but I could explain it exactly as Marilyn explained it, and but but most of you wouldn't understand it, and I don't want to do you like that. I mean, I just don't. Early in the morning, I don't want to make you wake up with an inferiority complex and and not fully understanding it. But at the end of the day, 
not not as Marilyn and I understand it, but it's the majority of you would understand it. And I'm looking at Reb and yeah. Kato. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the majority of you. Mm-hmm. Kato, with all due respect, you're heading out to the door, so we can insult you. <laughs> um, we won't have to deal with you after Friday anyway. So um, Give us the Kamala Harris explanations that we're trying to do to us. <laughs> oh, oh that, that's the cackle. That, that's everything with Kamala. Hey, uh, Kamala Harris, you think you run the country? <laughs> yep. Here's the hey, cackle. Hey, Carol, uh, uh, Kamala, do you think you understand the way Marilyn... Br- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's a little bit spooky the way she goes about it. Oh, yeah. But but do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I mean, see, I, mean I guess I'm. And not- it's not as simple as that. But but it is that, and it's called um, Monty Hall math now. Okay. And, and a lot of the MIT mathematicians criticized Marilyn for answering the question as she did. So they actually had a round table. I mean, imagine this: Marilyn sits down with a bunch of math professors, and she explains herself. And a handful had the um the willingness to say, "Hey, we were right, we were wrong, and Marilyn was right." But but in in its simplest expl- explanation or explaining it in simple in simple fashion, when you make that choice between three doors, you have a one in three chance of getting it right. When you choose, and then Monty shows you one of the two doors that the goat was behind, you should always change your mind. It obviously it doesn't mean you're always going to win. But you've increased your odds by a certain percentage by changing your mind. And um, th- there's about a six-minute video on YouTube that walks through scenario A, scenario B, and it explains it in a way that, Ma, you know, you and Monty probably wouldn't understand Marilyn and I mm. do. Right. Somebody on the phone? Uh, Let's yes. go there. Uh, hey, we're in a very serious world and a very serious time. I just thought we'd break the ice a little bit this morning with a um, – with a very unserious matter between some really, 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 really smart people. Yeah, and something to contemplate. Yeah, something to consider. To, 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 to take your mind off of the uh, troubles of there the world. There you go. So, Cato, when you're out and about in your new job, yeah. you can think about the Monty Hall math. All right, there I'll, you go. That, that'll be one thing you can take away from your um, <laughs> years and years and years of working here at Wake Up Carolina. And just as an aside, in the fun and games department, MLB and the Player Association met until about 3 this morning. Another marathon session. And uh, there's been some concessions, apparently, and uh, some people are hoping for an agreement today, and they they have they held off canceling the, the second week. I will find out today what Maryland thinks the odds are. Okay. I mean, because us Mensa members, <laughs> right. we, 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 we have a directory. You and put we put the pen and paper to that and figure it out. Yeah, I mean, I'm Let sure she know. could. And then the MIT mathematicians would disagree, and she would have to scold them publicly <laughs> as to why she was right. And they were, don't argue with a woman with a 228 IQ on math. Okay, I mean, that's, that's probably something. Should be obvious. Uh, yeah, there, there you go. Let's go to the phone. Breeze, good morning. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, Breeze. Kid, you know, you know more about this gas than I do, but um, I want to know what's changed. Let's take COVID out of the equation. We know why gas went down during COVID because nobody was driving. I mean, that makes sense. But prior to that, gas was re- relatively uh, reasonable. In fact, it was very reasonable. How can Joe Biden claim that his policies have not affected drilling. I mean, it's not affected the supply of gas. He says there's no proof that my policies have affected the supply of gas. And then you hear Jim Saki make the comment that there's all of these leases out there that nobody's drilling on. My argument would be that those leases don't have oil. That's why they're not drilling oil. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're not well, economically you- feasible. I went back and read something in... Uh- there's an article in Politico, there's an argument in the Financial Times, and there's something on Bloomberg. But the leases, I mean, they've secured these leases, 
but it's just not economically feasible. It doesn't make any sense right. to try and go drill for oil because they're going to have 60 bucks a barrel by the time they get it out of the ground. And they, answer your first question, Biden's lying. Sure, of he, course he that's is. What, that's, what I, that's what I was saying, but how can we prove that? And here's another thing that I've been thinking. I, I would like to, I wonder how powerful we all are and how powerful Wake Up Carolina is, but I would like to get all of the callers here, because most of us are Republican, but to call all of our Republican representatives and tell them that we don't want a war. We don't want a no-fly zone. We don't want to do anything to provoke the Russians into World War Three. So here's the catch. All of, just like that thing you were saying is uh, that um, all of these people, 75% said they wanted um, us to enforce a no-fly zone. But I saw another poll that showed how many Americans would actually be willing to fight for our country if we were invaded, and it was it was pathetic. So, and all of these senators and all of these people that are calling for war, well, hell, they they aren't going to be shot. They're going to be in a bunker. If the whole co- country gets attacked by nuclear bombs, they're going to be in a bunker for years, and then they'll come out. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. None of them got, none of them, it's not like Lindsey Graham that's going to put on this Air Force Reserve outfit and lead the charge, guys. So uh, another thing, too, and we discussed this on you and I, what, what would happen if we brought in as many Democrat and Republicans um, um, it, into the show to talk, maybe representatives, and say, can we not all agree that we need to do whatever's necessary to daggle lower the price of gas by putting pressure on the Biden administration and the rest of the House and senators, they'll lower the price of gas. And also, I wonder how many Democrat voters really understand that if we go to war with Russia, that there was one scenario that said that a billion people would be dead, would die from a war with Russia. A billion. This makes COVID and the rest of the stuff look like nothing. But if a Republican, but I say not, not, I'm not talking about these crazy, worthless politicians. But we'll have to find out if we got a democracy or not. If we have all Democrat and if we have Democrat voters and Republican voters, both raising hell with our elected officials, say, do not put us in a war and make that crazy bastard drill for some daggone oil and gas because we can't afford nine dollar a gallon of gas and we can't afford four dollar a gallon of gas. Thank you, Breeze. I want, I, want, I want to go through some math. Breeze touched on a lot of things there. It's almost like you read my mind. I got an article here and an article here, and I got some uh, some, some scribbled notes here. Um, let, 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 I want to give you a real quick number, then we'll take a break, Cato. And we got a call, and we'll get to the call. 843-661-0937 is our number. This is the most interesting number I have found as, as it relates to war or not, Biden's approval ratings or not. But I want to go through... There's a morning consult poll out. There's a Quinnipiac poll out. This is an interesting figure to me. Of all those, when when the American public are asked, you know, should we or should we not engage in a military conflict with Russia? 66% of Americans making over $200,000 a year say yes. 31% of Americans making less than $50,000 a year say yes. That's encouraging to me. Because I'm going to tell you, 
This country has a history of sending its poor kids and families off to war to fight, you know, ones that senators believe in or congressmen believe in or business people believe in or the establishment believes in or the elite believe in. But if you make under $50,000 a year, only about 31% of those people support some sort of military action against Russia. If you make over $200,000 a year, two in three support. You know why? Because people over $200,000 a year don't fight in wars. They like to talk about wars. They like to brag about how tough they'd be if they were ever faced with some sort of military conflict or decision to make uh, about engagement or not. But that's just not the reality. That's an encouraging number to me because most of the people who don't make much money, they're politically illiterate. I mean, they really are. You know, their worlds are about surviving and figuring out a way to make the house pay, but the car payment, you know, keep their head above water. And, And they're beginning to understand that their political leadership has no interest in their fate and well-being. I mean, that's just a reality. This country has a, a long-standing history of finding poor, impoverished families with very few options or alternatives, sending them to fight wars that senators and Congress members and business elites like to brag about. We showed Putin something, didn't we? Yeah, you sent a bunch of poor kids, and, and the families or their families have been unbelievably changed as a result of that, that, that's an interesting number to me. I want to come back on the other side and talk about this morning consult poll and offer up a commentary uh, about Joe Biden's presidency. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. A couple of callers are there. Let's go to the phone. Dale in Florence. Good morning. Morning, gentlemen. So, Ken, let me get this right. You went to Wofford for, what, about 17 days? Easy now. I think <laughs> it, was a, it was a summer and a semester. And that got you up there with, 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 with a 228 IQ. Where do I sign up for that? No, she didn't learn <laughs> um, that in college. She's like me. She's gifted, Dale. <laughs> oh, I misunderstood. <laughs> um, I'm right up there with Breeze. This was what I was going to call in this morning. You know, I heard, I, I heard him say Putin's war so many times during his speechifying yesterday. Like, if he says it often enough, we're all just going to forget that the price of gas was almost where it is now before the war started. Um, I don't know how stupid they think we are, but I remember a week ago that gas was almost to where it is now. It wasn't far from it. And to sit there and say that his administration bears no blame, I'm sorry. You people that voted for this man, where are you? Did you all just die? Did y'all turn into mutes? I remember you people calling in while Trump was still president, bashing the living bejesus out of him, and things was a bazillion times better than they are now. So I know that, that, that Biden's puppeteers think that we're all morons. They're half right. Their constituency is, is right up there where they think that they are. The rest of us, we see right through y'all. We know what you're doing. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Dale. I want to go to this. The morning consult poll. I mean, this came out yesterday. Joe Biden, remember Dr. Coppin said yesterday that Biden's approval ratings went up a little bit, and they did. I mean, I've seen it as high as 40. After the State of the Union. I've seen it as high as 47. Um, But the morning consult Politico poll has Biden's approval ratings at 45%. When you dig into the... I don't know the um some of the, some of the polling data, some of the information. Uh, what am I trying to say here? Some of the um 
uh, some of the secondary information. Of the, the primary mission of a poll is to find out what someone's approval or disapproval rating is. So in the, in the morning consult poll, Biden's approval rating is 45%. Whether that's right or not, that's their polling. That's what their polling shows. When you ask if Biden is a weak leader, 54% say yes. So they think he's weak. If you ask if Biden is energetic, 37% say yes. So Biden lacks energy. If you ask if Biden is mentally fit, 45% say yes. So mentally fit means Democrats are satisfied. He's not energetic enough to be president. Uh, he's a he's not strong enough to be president, but he is mentally fit by a, a margin of zero. His approval ratings are 45, and the number of people who respond to the poll say that they say he's mentally fit is 45. So as long as Joe Biden remains upright and breathing, which I think some days that's a challenge, um, the Democrats will approve of his performance. That's the only um, thing to gather from this poll. It's not that he is a, um, a generational leader. Nobody buys that. It's not that he's an energetic deal maker. Nobody buys that. It's not that he is a... Um, an aspirational or inspirational American president. Nobody buys that, but he ain't dead. And that's good enough for the Democrats. You know, he ain't dead and he ain't Trump. Kind of a low threshold. I mean, if, if you're not dead and you're not Trump and you're a Democrat, I guess you kind of, that's good enough for me. Because when you read the polling, that's all you can um, comprehend or that's all you can take away from, from the polling. Nobody's arguing that Biden is exceptional at anything. But he's not dead, and he's upright, and he's breathing, and 45% of people in America are just Democrats. And it doesn't matter what the Democrat says. I would hope that we as Republicans have the capacity to be realistically critical of a Republican when they fail to measure up. I mean, if, if all parties have turned into this, because this is silly, I mean, this is nonsense, but this is where the Democrats are. The guy doesn't have any energy. He's not very smart. Um... He's a weak leader, but he's not Trump. And for the Democrats, that's about good enough. Shame on you. Shame on each and every one of you that answers that question in that fashion and can lay your head down at night saying, I did right by the country. And when the standards are that low, look what you get. Well, he's look not at the shape of the country. But he's not Trump. And I guess that's good enough for 45% of America. You, you, I mean, really and truly, you answered the question yourself. I mean, the, the, the American public says he's not smart. The American public says he's a weak leader. The American public said he lacks energy. Uh, 46 say he's stable. 45 say he's not. I mean, imagine the largest uh, economy and the most powerful nation on earth and its electorate being asked, hey, do you think your president's stable or not? 46 say yes. 40, no, excuse me, 45 say yes. 46% say no. Um, but of the 40, that's his approval rating. The, the same percentage of people who believe he's mentally fit are the same people who believe um, that his, uh, he's doing a good job because you approve of the job he's doing. That is a sad commentary, not on Democrats or Republicans, but on we the people. I mean, if we have gotten ourselves to that condition or that position, we'll get exactly what we deserve in the end. Let's go to the phone. Rujan in the PD. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Hey, listen, uh, I did a quick quick uh, study, Ken, just, just in the last few minutes. You know, you said that, that 
individuals over $220,000 or something to that effect uh, are, are for war. If you if you do a look at the net worth of the of the majority of Congress, it's over a million dollars, and and if you go, that's the majority of them, and the rest of them are way over two hundred two hundred thousand uh, dollars. It, it seems to me that that they're the ones that's doing all the make you know decision making, and they're the ones that's that's uh, wanting to send you know uh, Americans' children, America's children, into harm's way. But if you look at it, every time they've done that, uh, you know, on the guise of, of we are are attacking someone, look at Korea, kind of we got our kind of got our butts out. We came out with a stalemate. Vietnam, we got our butts kicked. You know, you look at Afghanistan, we went in and and, and uh, tried to do. It doesn't make any difference, Republican Democrat. It doesn't make any difference. We went in there with the politicians' blessing, and uh, wound up leaving eighty three billion dollars worth of stuff, and you know in the uh afghanistan you know uh so my thing is why are we why are we even following we if we know that if we know that the the quote-unquote rich people want to send america's youth to war why are we even listening to them it doesn't make any sense you know and they're talking about a no-fly zone and just just by i can't give specifics but i know what a no-fly zone how, how it works have enforced one as a part of a team. It's not easy. It's not fun, and it's just it's just not a not a not a good thing. Unless unless you're gonna you know back it up 100 percent with all your assets and with all your your infrastructure to make sure that the enemy um, you know loses in a in a bad way. You know, but uh, <clears throat> just to just to top my mental qualifications again, 100 uh, percent. With 100% of surety, nothing is spelled in the English language starting with an N and ending with a G. And if you can't figure that one out, you don't deserve to be in Mensa. <laughs> Thank you, Rujan. <laughs> Appreciate that. The numbers Rujan's giving out is the number I gave out a second ago. And I want you to ponder this for a second because Rujan said, why do you trust them? 31% of Americans making less than $50,000 a year support actively engaging in some sort of military involvement with Ukraine and Russia. 66% of Americans making over $200,000 a year. Now, you can say, well, I mean, the smart people make more money. Eh, eh, on average, maybe, but, but not overwhelmingly. I, I don't agree with that. But, but we've, we've, we've questioned many, many, many times on the air, um, is, do, do the people who make less than $50,000 a year have much of a say-so in what this country does. I mean, we, we, we've, we've had debates over the airwaves about history and who gets to write history. Is history being chronicled by those making less than $50,000 a year? Of course not. I mean, the narratives are created by those who have influence. And in America, um, money buys you influence. I mean, the, the way you influence the political process is to uh, be a fundraiser, to give money, to get your name on a list, to, to have the ear of the congressman, or the ear of the senator, ear of the governor ear of the uh, the county council city council i mean that you know that there there's a there's a, a financial game being played within all this but when you say you know um why do we trust them i don't think the american people trust them but there, there's a problem in america today that the so someone was i don't know arguing would be an unfair word we were having a debate sunday during the race a texting debate back and forth about exxon and, you know, I, I said yesterday, and I'll say this again, this is a bit provocative, and I don't know that I, that I believe this, 
But if 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 what we're if the last year was a movie, and we get to the um to the pinnacle of the movie, the end of the movie, and behind the curtain is the person responsible for all of the, uh, you know, you you think it's Russia, I think it's Ukraine, we think it's the American government, we believe it's the the Chinese, but uh, behind the curtain sits the CEO of Exxon. I mean, what what is good for Exxon? Expensive oil. Now, now, once again, that's a bit provocative, and I'm not arguing that big oil is behind the war. I'm, I'm certainly not arguing that big oil instigated, you know, or, or, or was involved in, you know, spreading some of the narratives of Ukraine and NATO, and out of that, Putin gets, you know, real nervous and concerned about the buffer that we talk about. But, I mean, do we really believe that any of the narrative has not been politically, economically influenced? I mean, we, we, we had a discussion yesterday about what to believe or what not to believe. Do, do you believe, I mean, I've, I've been conditioned to believe certain things about Russia. These are the very people I don't have any faith in any longer. Everything I've learned about Russia in, in my life has been from who? Political leaders in the media. I mean, I don't know anything about Russia. I do know that McDonald's closed 850 restaurants. Starbucks closed, uh, closed 100 coffee shops. Uh, Pepsi and Coke said, I'm out of here. So the cola wars in Russia no longer exist. Both of those iconic brands says thank you, but no thank you to Russian commerce. But everything I know about Russia or, or what I've learned over an extended period of time from the media and our political leadership, I know even I know far less about Ukraine. And I'll tell you, Rev, I, you know, I, I got caught up in the emotions for about a week, maybe a week and a half until I settled down and said, do I really know enough about the uncertainty of Ukraine to commit an opinion of involvement. I mean, my, my opinion doesn't matter. I don't, I don't send military men and women into harm's way. I mean, I don't have, you know, I'm not the commander-in-chief. I'm not a voting member of Congress. I don't appropriate funding for our, mili- our American military. But I, I remember, one, I don't know, one day toward the end of last week, kind of pumping the brakes, saying, whoa, whoa, everything you know about Russia is the, 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 the voices that you trusted in your youth that you don't have a lot of faith nor trust in today. But there's an established narrative with Russia. It's been fairly consistent. Russia, historically, I've been told, is, you know, Russian prosperity is not in American best interest. Uh, R- Russian expansion is not in America's best interest. And th- there, there are many of my friends who ascribe to the former Orthodox. You know, Russia's bad, and this could be the next Hitler. Um, I don't see anything to me that suggests Russia has an expanded, uh, you know, obviously they're expansionist. But I, I mean, has, has any has anybody heard anything that I've hadn't heard about Russia expanding into Germany or Poland or Hungary or some of these other Western European countries? I've not heard anything there. But I hear the um the sirens of Hitler. I mean, you're beginning to hear that now. You better stop him there. I mean, that that's kind of the old world order. Everybody that ever expanded, what where it could, if the American military had a chance to get involved, what was it normally? What is his involvement was normally generated by. So you, you better fight them over there than fight them over here. But I mean, if you don't stop, you know, if you don't stop Putin there, next thing you know, it'll be like Nazi Germany in the Second World War. I, everything I've been conditioned to believe in my life about Russia comes from the very people that I have zero trust and faith in today. I know even less about Ukraine. So if I'm questioning those sources and voices that have told me X, Y, and Z about Russia, 
and I believe in a week's time I know what we need to do about Ukraine. How many of you trust the government of Ukraine? I mean, I know he's being celebrated as a hero. I get that. I mean, he's performed admirably, we think. I mean, the media reports say he has. But do we really know enough about Ukraine to suggest military engagement or involvement? If you make over 200 k apparently you do. Because 66% of those say it's time to engage. If you're poor and broke and know you're the ones or the families are the ones that will go and fight the war in uncertain terms, you say thank you. But no, that, that encourages me that people who don't have money, don't have political influence, are on to or realize what your government has historically been up to. Back in a minute. 843 You know, in a weird kind of way, the reason things have gotten so complicated, the America First agenda has impacted American politics in a way that a lot of people don't want to admit. I mean, the number of, of people under the, the, the percentage of Americans making less than $50,000 who say thank you and no thank you to being involved in Ukraine and Russia is a direct reflection on the America First movement. In other words, people making less than 50 grand a year have been political bystanders, not very interested, um, not informed, illiterate to some degree. And along comes America first. And along comes the touching of a nerve of the American working class that says, hey, you know, uh, I mean, once again, and I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it again, I never imagined it be a billionaire from New York. Eh, maybe a billionaire. Um, I think he's renting a jet to come Saturday because his other jet um, needs some repairs. <laughs> well, if he was a big, billionaires fix their jets, don't they? Or buy new ones. Well, or they buy new ones. But I think Trump's chartering a jet because his needs repair, and apparently there are some um, financial issues involved in that, from what I'm gathering. Hmm. Now, these are sources that are close enough to be dangerous, but not so close as to be um, never wrong. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. So, so Ken, kind of just what you were talking about. You know, anyone that believes the 2020 election was legitimate would also have to believe that almost 22 million more people voted uh, in 2020 over 2016. Um, all of that during the height of the worst global pandemic ever uh, that they, they scared us to death over. So the elites who wanted Biden know Trump killed it in 2020, going from 63 million votes approximately to approximately 75 million votes, the most of any incumbent president ever in the history of this country. Um, the, the second president to ever get more votes the second time and still lose all of that because of us, the working class. So the runaway inflation foaming at the mouth to send our young sons off to some battlefield to be blown to smithereens and come back in body bags, the high gas prices, everything they're doing to us right now, is it simply just punishment? for our support of Donald Trump. Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. That's an interesting hmm. um, analogy, and I thought of that. Um, they're trying to teach you a lesson. This is not your sandbox. This is theirs. They make the rules. They call the shots. You play by the rules, and you answer to the shots. And and they understand with clarity. But I, I'm, I'm certain of this. They understand that something's going on that they've got to deal with. And it's the uprising of the American working class. There are many, many, many Republicans who don't like where the party. I'll go back to a conversation that Dr. Thigpen, and I miss Doc. Um, 
dealing with some medical issues. I'll just leave it there. But um, Fig Pen one day on the show, because if you want Doc to tell you to answer a question, ask him. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a, he's an older, liberated um, Republican who doesn't particularly care for the America First movement. But I asked Doc over the air one day, I said, Doc, what you're basically saying is you don't like these Republican voters. And he paused for a second and he said, I suppose you're right. They lack reverence. They, they, they're a bit uninformed. Um, illiterate would be the word. They're politically illiterate. They, they lack reverence. They don't, they don't have a comprehension of what American politics is and how it works. No, they're well aware. That's the counter argument to America first. I think they're beginning to become more and more and more and more aware. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I want to be a part of a Republican party that prioritizes the American working class. I'm proud that only 31% of people in America making less than $50,000 a year believe it's in our best interest to go to Ukraine and risk American treasure. By that, I mean spill American blood in a land far, far away that we have very little understanding of. That is a step in the right direction. That is not unpatriotic. I mean, that, that, that is America first, you know, uh, being a, a, a prevalent force in American politics or a prevailing force in American politics, and I'm proud of that. Because I don't believe had America first happened and Trump got elected and some of these, uh, some of this awareness coming to the forefront, that number would probably be 50 or 60 percent. The, the percentage of Americans making less than 50 grand who believe we need to be militarily involved in Ukraine, Russia, would have probably been about the same percentage of those making over 200K. But now the working class is understanding, and I think America first deserves all the credit here. The American working class are beginning to understand your pawns in their game. They understand that you don't have much political clout. They understand that in a political world where contributions rule and fundraisers kind of make the laws, you don't have that sort of resource. You don't have that sort of ability. The only, the only advantage America first has is in numbers, sheer numbers, the masses. I mean, we've argued before, what if every America firster, Let's say there were 50 million of the 75 million that voted for Donald Trump in 2020 that pledged a loyalty and allegiance, not to the Republican Party, but to America first, the political ideology, the political movement. It's not really an ideology. It'd be more of a movement. What if everybody gave 20 bucks? I mean, you really want to shape the political world at its core? Mature. Bill Barr says this. America first has to mature. Part of the maturity is raising money having resources, getting the attention of those who don't like you. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Steve in Florence. Good morning. Morning, guys. You know, if we just don't drive for two weeks, we can flatten the curve. <laughs> flatten the curve. There you go. How many times I, have I heard I, that? I heard Biden say something about do your part. The last time government told me to do my part, they made me wear a face diaper and tried to stick me with the needle. But is anybody kind of worried about like a false flag operation that, you know, propel us into this war? Because that's what I think about before I go to bed. And I'll take that off the air. Thank you, Steve. I mean, I hear some of these conspiracy theorists, and, and normally I would have dismissed or discounted or just said, yeah, just stop with that. I mean, that's, that's nonsensical. I, saw, I told a friend of mine at lunch yesterday that, the smartest people may be the ones that don't trust anything they're told. I mean, have we, have we gotten there with the level? And it's not just paranoia. 
I mean, it's not paranoia by any stretch of the imagination. It's kind of an intellectual evaluation we've all done. Just because you make less than 50 grand a year doesn't mean you're dumb. Just because you make more than 200 grand a year doesn't mean you're smart. I mean, I, I don't buy that. I mean, I, I've never bought into that. I mean, I know many, many, many people who have never made much money, but I want them on my team when it comes to sorting through and, and figuring things out. And I know a lot of people who've done extremely well in business, and I kind of scratch my head saying, I don't want you near my campaign. I don't want you near my politics. I don't want you near making uh, conscientious or consequential decisions in my life. I want to go back to because I think it's an important week this week, not just about Ukraine, not just about Russia, not just about the price of gas, but um, what is the influence of America first on today's political equation? In other words, had there never been an America first, would, would a certain percentage of the American people be that hesitant and, and reluctant to buy hook, line, and sinker the narrative we're being sold? I mean, when I see these polling or when I see this polling number, I, out of that comes a um, kind of a mindset there are so many different aspects to America first. Um, there's someone in the Republican Party in South Carolina today that gives me credit for something that I'm proud to get credit for. I said over the over the airways one day that the problem with the establishment Republican Party is not enough of those men and women have ever gone to bars with dirt parking lots. Now, I said it to be a bit, it's just humorous and it's 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 a little bit um ah, what a good old boyish. But, but it's true. And we're talking about January 6th and about the Republicans. And it was an insurrection and these people need to be dealt with. They were criminals. And, you know, the first one got sentenced yesterday. Um, I don't know if you saw this or not, but they had a trial. The first person got sentenced. We'll go into that in just a bit. But, um, but, but the other point I want to make is that, that there are many, many, many people in America first that grew up in blue-collar circumstances with white-collar incomes. That's a kind of a weird way to say it, that there's a blue-collar characteristic about their perception uh, or, or that their worldview is very blue-collar, but they've done extremely well in business or, or they've done extremely well in whatever, whatever walk of life they've chosen. It may be professional. It may be, um, you know, owning a junkyard. It may be owning a muffler shop. It may be owning a truck body manufacturing plant or a construction company. There, there's a blue-collar mindset with those sort of people, but they have a white-collar income that goes along with it. So so when I look at America first, I see a lot of people who have been to bars with dirt parking lots. I see a lot of people who have a blue-collar mindset and a white-collar income. Uh, with all due respect, I kind of grew up in I mean, my dad did fairly well in business, but we never lost that blue-collar route. I mean, it was obvious where, where we came from. I mean, it was steel-toed boots in the corner. It was Wrangler shirts in the closet. It was, uh, you know, a Russell Athletic sweatshirt. I mean, we, we uh, and I think there's so many people that relate to that. Now, there are a lot of blue-collar families that still have blue-collar incomes that consider themselves to be America Firsters. But there are a lot of people who have blue-collar families, blue-collar backgrounds, blue-collar households, but they've, they've done well in the business world, and they have this white-collar income. Those are the people that I believe are most important in this political movement if it is to, as Bill Barr says, mature. And I think America First has to mature. I think the part of America First that needs to mature is accepting and realizing how important political contributions are to the way the political world works. Um, most, most America Firsters 
don't believe it's worth investing $20 a month into a political movement. I'm going to the rally. You know, I'm tailgating. I'm having a hell of a big time, man. I'm going to see Trump, and we're going to reminisce on the way things were and how we hope they are again. But I think the the one thing America First can do if it is to mature and be the most effective it can be is to have a war chest because that gets the attention, whether we like it or not, that gets the attention of the political apparatus. And right now, other than Trump, I mean, Trump Save America has got a lot of money. I mean, Save America, the, the Republican Party doesn't want to admit this. They don't like saying this. But Save America is in direct competition with the Republican Party for the contributions of its donor class. But I think America First could seek out, identify, find, and convince a new donor class to become donors. It doesn't, you, know, you don't have to give a check for $25,000 to the Bush Library to be, you know, an America Firster. That's kind of the, um, that's the pedigree of the establishment in the Republican Party. Um, what, when you go to some of these functions, your name gets on a list, and next thing you know, he gave $25,000 to the George H.W. and the George W. Presidential Library Fund. Uh, America First, so who cares? I mean, why, why do presidents need libraries anyway? And why do we staff libraries with government employees? And I mean, so I think America First could be a highly effective political movement moving forward if it matures. And when Bill Barr says things complimentary about President, uh, the book, it, it's what, what's the name of the book he's written? Uh, it's one damn thing after the other, something to that effect about being an AG, uh, you know, in the presidencies. And I mean, he's highly critical of President Bush. But, but I, you know, last night he's on Brett Baer's show and he says, you know, the one thing I'll give the president credit for, he addressed things that former presidents knew needed to be addressed, but just did not have the willingness to go there. China, trade, immigration, securing the borders, a part of immigration. Bill Barr gives President Trump high marks and rave reviews on being willing to go places that Republican presidents historically have not gone, how are we going to deal with China? How many times have we heard from Republican presidents, we've got to have a game changer with China? How many times have we heard Republican presidents say, we've got to secure the southern border? How many times have they done it? And I think America first could be a political movement that requires action. In other words, if you profess to be an America firster and you ask for the support of the America first universe, you better be willing to do things. I mean, the spoken word is not an accomplishment in America first, but it lacks funding. It, it lacks mass funding. I mean, it, it's got, you know, Trump's got 125-ish million dollars in the Save America Super PAC. I think we should have a billion. I mean, I think Save America, uh, uh, Make America Great Again, also known as America First, also known as uh, Save America. I think it could raise a billion dollars off the backs of these these working class people who have gone to bars with dirt parking lots and the blue collar families who have white collar incomes who are frustrated, fed up, disgusted by business as usual. That's where this movement has to mature. And I would imagine that's why Trump's coming to Florence. I mean, he's coming to Florence Saturday to support two candidates that he's endorsed in congressional races of, of, of those who have, you know, drawn his ire. I mean, Nancy Mace and Trump, were friendly to begin with. Uh, they had a falling out. Trump's a bit vindictive. And we know the story with Congressman Rice. He chose to vote with the Democrats to impeach former President Trump. And then he's kind of doubled and tripled down on on that vote. Um, so Russell and Katie will be part of this event Saturday. But this is a, I mean, this is a c- kind of a forced movement event. 
I mean, this is, can we make, I mean, can the movement sustain itself? And what we got to ask ourselves, and I don't know the answer to this, is it a one-trick pony? I mean, is it a movement without Trump? I mean, well, can it sustain? Well, I mean, how good is the, I mean, I'll, I'll use my guys as an example. How many people would go see the E Street Band? Far fewer than would go see Bruce Springsteen of the E Street Band, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'm, not, I'm not giving Bruce any love. I mean, that's just a reality. Um, if, if you got Trump and America first, it is a, I mean, it, it's, it's a prohibitive force. I mean, there is no doubt about it. But what if you've got America first without Trump? Something's got to, something's got to replace that energy. And I think it's money. I mean, I, I just think make America great again that, 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 that I called America first, that he calls Saves America, needs to have a billion-dollar war chest to identify races where America first candidates need to be supported. Let's go to the phone. Here's Robin in Florence. Good morning. You're on. Good morning. How y'all doing? Hey, Ken. Hey, Robin. Hey, Ken. So, uh, plus, you don't hear about it anymore is Kuwait. I don't understand why Kuwait doesn't step up and help the U.S. with this oil production, um, you know, since they, the U.S. helped save them from Saddam Hussein. And they got U.S. forces based over there. And I, that's why I was going to ask you, you don't hear any more about Kuwait anymore. From what I gather, now all I can do is just tell you what I read. From what I understand, and the Wall Street Journal is talking a lot about this, the only country with excess capacity is Saudi Arabia. I mean, everybody else is producing about as much as they can produce. What well, other than America? I mean, America's got a lot of excess capacity, but we're, you know, uh, we're, we're singing John Lennon's Imagine and wondering about Tesla's. And what does he go saying? Let them eat cake? I think Buttigieg and, and Kamala Harris yesterday said, let them drive Tesla's. Uh, that's kind of the way. But, but no, I mean, I, I think that the only, um, the only country that I understand, and this is, once again, for the Wall Street Journal, that has excess capacity and i'm not talking about a thousand barrels or two thousand barrels i'm talking about a half million barrels or a million barrels saudi arabia seems to be the country that now now, i don't know if you saw this or not but late yesterday afternoon news broke that saudi arabia the uae declined the meeting with joe biden i mean imagine that Uh, imagine saudi arabia being asked to meet with the american president and saudi arabia saying thank you but no thank you but that, that's where Biden is in a, in a, in a you know, what, what I call a perception of rel- relativity. Bi- Biden is not perceived a strong leader. He's not perceived a guy in command of his country or his economy or, or, or world affairs, his place in those world affairs. Um, so when Biden reaches out, if any American president reaches out to, a other, to another foreign leader, you take the meeting because he's the American president. Saudi Arabia yesterday declined to meet with current president, not former president Donald Trump, but current president Joe Biden, that speaks volumes wow. as to where we stand and how, I don't know, uh, dysfunctional we appear to be in regards to what we're doing and what we should do. And I just don't understand. I mean, I've asked some of my green friends this. So drilling for oil in Moscow or drilling for oil in Saudi Arabia is less dangerous to the environment than drilling for oil in Iowa or drilling for oil in Montana or drilling for oil in Oklahoma or Texas or Pennsylvania. I would argue that we do it better, cleaner, more efficiently than anywhere. There is no doubt about it. I mean, we we have a a, a cleaner, more environmentally friendly way of extracting oil from the ground, but it's just bizarre. I mean, the the whole situation is is something that I just, I can't fathom, can't comprehend, and, and how Democrats still marry themselves to this agenda, this belief. Um, Elon Musk.
probably has as much to lose as anybody on this planet if we become um, more accustomed to fossil fuels, more committed to fossil fuels. Elon Musk says we have no choice. I mean, to believe that we can, you know, everybody show up tomorrow at the Ford dealership or the GM dealership or the Toyota dealership or the Tesla dealership and buy an electric car. As Stephen Colbert said yesterday, I don't know if you saw this or not, but Stephen Colbert says that our good conscience should have a number. In other words, if gas is $4 a gallon, but to make the world a better place and to support the Ukrainians, I'm willing to pay. He said 15 bucks a barrel. Well, Colbert makes $16 million Easy a year. Easy for a rich guy sure. to say. And he says he drives a Tesla. I mean, the, 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 that's disgusting does. and insulting to 75% of Americans who couldn't imagine buying a Tesla and, and couldn't go to work if gas costs $15 a barrel. That's the elite, that's the coastal elite liberal that, that is the face of the party in America today. Let them drive Teslas. Let them eat cake years and years and years ago. Let them drive Teslas today. And I'll say this. Here's the dirty secret. The elite coastal liberal doesn't give a rat's ass what you, the working class, have to pay for gasoline. I can assure you of that. If it advances this green agenda, if it makes them more popular in the, in the Hamptons or at Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard when they get together at some of these parties and drink Perrier water and caviar and, and have a good time, I mean, you're the last thing they're thinking about. You're the last thing they're considering. And that's what makes me such a passionate supporter of America first. Do I believe Trump got everything right? No. I think Trump left a lot of wins on the field. I think Trump was his own worst enemy more times than he was his, his best friend and biggest ally. But, but Trump touched a nerve and Trump spoke in a way that I found relatable and is relatable to blue-collar America. And that's, I mean, that, that, to me, Cato and Rev, that is, that is the unknown. How motivated can blue-collar America, the working class, be of American politics? How much energy can they muster? How much, um, I don't want to talk about emotion. I don't want to talk about stomping your feet and beating the table. I mean, we can all do that. That doesn't accomplish anything. Can, can America first mature to the point of being the most dominant political force in American politics today. But don't I you need a can. motivator? Well, I mean, yeah. That, I mean, obviously uh, Trump is that role. Well, Trump's the motivator but today. Beyond Trump. But who? When, when we do pass the baton, where is the baton passed to? Is it DeSantis? Is it Hawley? Is it J.D. Vance? I don't think there is another Trump. I, don't think, I think Trump's a political phenomenon. And I think if you'll go Saturday and watch him speak at this event, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, he's a, um, a larger-than-life political figure. The point I'm making, Rev is to sustain a political movement, to enact major change on a political ecosystem, it takes money. And I think more and more of us need to understand, I'm not talking about a $25,000 donation to the George W. Bush Presidential Library. I'm talking about agreeing to be a $10 a month or $20 a month contributor to making America great again, America first, um, save America. We can call it whatever you choose to call it. I don't like make America great again because I think that is all about Trump. I like America first. Every policy we pass, every agenda item we advocate in support of is going to be because we believe this is in the best interest of the American people, not the American political class, not the American elite, not the American establishment, not corporate America, but the masses, the general will of the average American. That's the person who has not had any representation. And when I read this Quinnipiac poll, 
about 31% of people making less than 50 grand a year believe we need to be further engaged in Ukraine. That's rest and residue of America first. I mean, America first has raised awareness amongst politically illiterate people to not trust those who we historically have trusted. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. 50 75 million people voted for Trump. Let's say the, the 25 million, let's say that, that 33% voted because he's a Republican and they're Lord of the Republicans. But let's say 50 million buy into this America first agenda. It ain't perfect. It needs to be, you know, tweaked and turned and twisted and, and grown up. I mean, it needs to mature. There, there's Bill Barr's word. It needs to mature. Um, but 50 million of us say, okay, let, let's, let's do as good with this as we possibly can. And I'm willing to make an investment. And each of us, 50 million, gave 20 bucks a year. I mean, that's a couple of gallons of gas. Um, <laughs> that's a billion dollars. I mean, that's a billion dollars a year. Guys, if we had a billion dollars a year to spend to genuinely advance, I'm not talking about pay a bunch of administrators who don't care whether they win or lose. I'm not talking about sending money to one of these political parties that, that carves out about 60% of it. You know, you got this agency and that agency and this department and that department. I'm talking about if we sent $20 a year to, 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 to America first in the name of advancing policies that empower the American worker, everybody pays attention. We don't take a backseat to anybody because when you sit down in a room, you may have uh, Levi's and a Wrangler shirt on. But you've got a checkbook in your pocket with a billion-dollar balance. Everybody in that room knows you're for real. Everybody in that room cares what you have to say. And when you say certain things about Ukraine and Russia or certain things about the southern border or certain things about trade policy or certain things about tax policy, everybody listens. Not because you know what you're talking about, but you got big boy money. And that world, unless you're going to try to reform that, and good luck there. But I think money has taken hold in American politics in a way that we're not going to untangle it. You're not going to disconnect money from politics in America. So if you're not going to disconnect money from politics in America, what do you do? You have more money than anybody else. And I think it would be easy to raise. Everybody says, wow, Trump's got $100 million, should have a billion. The America First movement should be funded annually to the tune of $1 billion. That makes you a big boy in the world of politics. Let's go to the phone. Here's Robert in Knoxville. Hi, Robert. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, yes, uh, I'm saying everybody gets a billion dollars, but all this is pertaining to Trump. Where are the other Republicans supporting Trump in this movement? I mean, they're they're on the sidelines, and the Democrat Party are all band it together, but it seems like the Republican Party is doing nothing and supporting our cause and, and advancing uh, these policies in, that we need. Thank you, Robert. Well, the, the first thing the Republican Party has to do is embrace the, the, the idea of being a party of the working class. I mean, a lot of Republicans don't want that. They want your vote. They don't want your input. I mean, if you're the working stiff, and there's a lot of us, I mean, God loves common people. Because he made a bunch of them. I mean, the masses are the common people. I mean, there are variances of common. You know, some people do a little better than others. But very few people have enough money to not ever worry about money, right? 
And we're talking yesterday about the, the family making between seventy-five and $100,000 a year. I mean, the American political system could care less what you think because you've never demonstrated the ability to contribute to political campaigns or movements in a consistent way. I mean, you, you'll, you'll send a $10 check to, you know, savehumanity.com or savethewhales.com. But, but if we could organize ourselves, and this is part of the maturity, and, and we could raise a billion dollars annually, the people who, a lot of the Republicans don't want to be labeled America firsters because once you're labeled America firsters, Pfizer start, stops contributing. Once you kind of, um, cons- you know, basically declare yourself an America firster, corporate America doesn't have any use for you because we're at odds with corporate America. I mean, we're, we're with odds with the political elite, the political establishment. So when you step out on that ledge as a Republican and declare yourself an America firster, it's going to be a lot more complicated to raise money and to fund campaigns unless there's a billion dollars sitting over here exclusively to support those candidates who do endorse and advocate on behalf of this America first um, agenda. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Good morning. You're on. Yeah, good morning, guys. Hey, we just proved that we can change the ideas of these people in Washington. I mean, the American people lit up the phone lines over this Russian oil stuff. Biden didn't want to do that. But both Democrat and Republicans called their representatives and said, you will do this or you won't be there no more. Well, all of a sudden, Nancy Pelosi says, yeah, let's cut it off. They were putting a bill together through the House, and the Senate already had like 70 votes for it to stop that uh, Russian oil. But Biden had to get in front of it so it wouldn't come to his desk and look like he wasn't leaving. So the American people, they have a big role in this. The only thing is, like the Tea Party, the, the Republican Party hated the Tea Party. John Boehner could not stand them. The reason Saudi Arabia won't take Biden's phone call is because Biden's trying to do a deal with Iran to give him nuclear weapons. That's their mortal enemy. Trump had the Abraham Accords and was building peace over there, and Biden's tearing all that up. So, no, they're not going to help him out. As far as Ukraine goes, Biden was encouraging Ukraine back in November, saying, we'll support you, join NATO. And that was the one thing Putin said, you know, I need that buffer zone. You can't do that. But Biden kept encouraging and kept pushing and pushing and and started building up the troops. So I'm thinking Biden kind of pushed them into to starting this war and I don't know, it might be because of all the problems he's got going on around him to uh, distract the American people, but uh, he's in trouble, and and they know it. So if the American people light these phones up and tell these people what they want, you, you've got a big say in it. But I'm going to tell you what, you send them $100, you're on every list in the country. I get... A thousand emails and probably six hundred letters a week for donation. So be careful what you donate to. Y'all have a good one. Thank you. I appreciate that, Joe. Um, and that's the truth. I mean, if you show a willingness to contribute, 
Um, I mean, when I ran for office, I sat in a room three days a week for about two hours a day and called complete strangers and begged them for $3,500. Hmm. I mean, that's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah that, that's how um, you like that. <laughs> but that's the way the world works. And I had a fundraising coordinator that convinced me that if I didn't call these people, they'd be insulted because they're on the list. That and is you, an interesting and, world. And, and it's a very interesting world. But I want to go back to, and I, and I mean this, guys. Um, the one thing I've taken great joy from on the game, I've enjoyed the majority of interactions we've ever had. I mean, it's a lot of fun for me. I hope it's some fun for you. But the one thing I get passionate about is the the opportunity to be a part of building something. And, and I try to argue as aggressively as I can why you should be excited about that as well. I'm not talking to, to, to very many blue bloods. But I mean, if I am, you won't admit that you listen to the show anyway. But I, mean, I know the way talk radio is perceived in the mainstream. You know, we're, we're looked at a little bit awkwardly because we probably a little more rambunctious than you'd wish and, and a little more provocative than you'd wish. And we get, you know, a little bit loose and fast every now and then. Um, you know, it's kind of the, um, ah, it's the black sheep of the family, so to speak. But we're highly effective. And I think, you know, the, the body politic understands that talk radio has become a highly effective medium um, for communicating with the masses. And, and, I, and I've tried to communicate day after day after day at every corner. And when I've given an opportunity to advocate for this America First agenda, I do. The, the question I have that I've never been able to answer myself is how do you sustain post-Trump? I mean, Trump is a political anomaly that there is no doubt about it. Um, he cuts both ways. You know the story. I don't even have to say it. Uh, if I say it, I'm regurgitating things I've said a hundred times over the airwaves. But if you have, because you've asked me this before, and if, if if I were a designer, if I were the chief architect of America First, what would it look like? And tell you what it looked like. There would be a room with Elon Musk, with Peter Thiel, with, with several other business leaders, with political leaders, with, with with some academics. I mean, I'd want some academic influences involved in this. And there would be a budget of a billion dollars a year. And we'd build a machine. And the machine would be a thousand times bigger than Donald Trump ever imagined it would be. And we would enforce um, beliefs. We would advocate for policies. Every policy that came as an adopted or endorsed policy of America First would have the American people as its priority. What, what do we need to do with Ukraine and Russia? Let, let's get this leadership team in a room Let's consider all angles, all prospects, all um, likelihoods, and let's come out with a suggestion, you know, a, a position. That position is not predicated on what the American Foreign Policy Council believes, what the Republican Party believes, what the Democrats believe. This is what we believe is in the best interest of the American people. And you find candidates that they go out and advocate or vote for those sorts of agenda items, and you support those guys and those ladies. You help them advance these issues. You help them advance. I said it a hundred times. I said it yesterday. I put it on. I didn't tweet in a long, long, long time. My daughter wanted me to tweet, so I, I do what my daughter says. So I tweeted and I put it on Facebook. What do you believe? I mean, we've got a um, an embargo of Russian oil, right? We banned Russian oil. We're not accepting any Russian oil any longer. What if the pensions of the members of Congress were invested exclusively in Russian oil? There's no way we would embargo. There's no way we would ban. It's a self-serving universe. It's a, um, a back-scratching universe. And the people that have been excluded are the likely suspects, those that don't have any money and those that don't have any political clout. 
And we've kind of accepted that as normal. You know, I'm not a rich man. I'm not a rich woman. I'm not politically connected. He's politically connected. Of course they're going to do what he says do. Of course they're going to do what the donor class says do. If America First and its 50 million supporters were to put their money where their mouth is, you would overwhelm every other competing entity in the political orbit today. It is uh, the most momentum. It has the most momentum. It's diverse. It's broad-reaching. It's wide-ranging. It's a lot of these things, um, and I don't completely understand it. I mean, I'm not professing that I understand every um, nook and cranny of America first, but it is where I think the Republican Party needs to hang its hat, and, and I accept that there are many, many old-hand Republicans who find it appalling and offensive. And I think Trump mishandled, and I think Trump did great damage to the American First Movement after the election. I mean, I think pre-election that there was a, a sterling opportunity to really captivate the minds and imaginations of a voter. And, and I, think, I think it was greatly damaged. I mean, I, I didn't say January 6th was an insurrection, and I didn't say that the, um, there are things about the election we'll never understand. But, but, but I think the, the way the Trump administration, Trump himself personally, handled post-November 2020 hurt the America First movement. I mean, I don't think it's you know, beyond repair. I think it can do some things to put itself in a more competitive position. But that's my interest. I mean, when I think about Russia, you know what I think about? The American working class. When I think about Ukraine, I think about the American working class. When I think about taxes and trade and, and the southern border, I always think about the American working class because newsflash, there are very few people in Washington today thinking about the plight of the average American. We, the people, are who they are supposed to be prioritizing, and we know they aren't. And, the, and once again, if you believe you can blow the money machine up, then blow it up. I think there's a better chance of competing in that sphere, in that universe, by 50 million people giving X number of dollars a year. And if at 20 bucks a year, Kato, would you give 20 bucks a year? Sure. Rev, would you give 20 bucks a year? I'm in. Sign me up. A billion dollars, Peter Thiel and several other really bright minds who believe fundamentally in America first, it shakes the American political system in a way it has never been shaken before. Back in a minute. 6610937, hump day on a Wednesday. <laughs> I uh, I'm trying to figure out. So you so this polling that shows the the people that make under fifty thousand are uh, less likely to support basically going to war in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Um, that, but you think that is a as a direct result of America First or an America First influence? No question. Those people so, didn't have a political home. That there there was nobody that listened to them. That there was nobody that that cared anything about those people. And I'm not saying Trump does. I mean, I know a lot of people who believe Trump's a con man. He's conning all of these these working class people into believing he's some political pod piper. You know, he's a um. I mean, I refer to him as Cheeto Jesus. I mean, I do that tongue in cheek because he's kind of an orange guy, and um, and he's somewhat of a political messiah to certain people who feel like they've been left behind, neglected, the forgotten man. I mean, we've talked a little bit about the forgotten man. Yeah, I, I do believe when you look at the data, America First has had an enormous impact on those who historically have not been very politically engaged. And, and I, you know, I've tried to go back to the beginning of when 
when was it inevitable that somebody like this was going to be president of the United States? And I think there's a combination of a lot of different things. But I really go back, and I've said it over the airways before. You know where I'm about, about to head. The day they bailed Wall Street out was the day that a lot of Americans finally came to the conclusion this entire system is rigged. I mean, it's bought and paid for. And I don't have enough money to buy it. I don't have enough money to pay for it. So I'm just kind of along for the ride. And it makes me angry when they bail Goldman out. It frustrates me when they make these inside deals. But there ain't a damn thing I can do about it. Because I don't have any political horsepower. I don't have any money. So I'm simply along for the ride. And along comes Trump. And he, and he touches a nerve with a universe of people who now feel like, Rev, they have a home. That there's somewhere they can reside uh, with, with people of similar beliefs and similar uh, perceptions and similar lifestyles, for that matter. I mean, America kind of silos itself anyway. And I think when you go to the rally Saturday, you're going to see a lot of good and decent, hardworking Americans that, that, that never felt they had a political residence. What zip code are you in? I don't know. I mean, I'm not. He was a voice. Yeah, he got no question about it. See, a lot of people refer to him as a wrecking ball, and he was. I mean, there's no doubt. I mean, he was a Molotov cocktail. He was the middle finger to the man. But but there's a secondary reality here. He was a home. He was somewhere that people went who never felt like they had a place to go when when they began discussing politics or trying to understand politics because he basically said the game's rigged and you're getting screwed. Now, now, Trump also said, I know you're getting screwed because I helped rig the game. <laughs> so there was some sincerity there. That there was some candor. Um, you know, for a dishonest, for, for a man who's perceived to be fundamentally dishonest, part of those honest things Trump said was that. You know, I know the game is rigged because I'm one of the guys that helped rig the game. And when I rigged the game, guess who we didn't think about? Guess who we didn't consider? Guess who we didn't worry about? Guess who we could have cared less about? You. So, so when I see this number, and the number is, for those just joining us, the number of Americans that make over $200,000 a year that believe we need to do more in, in regards to actively engaging in Ukraine and Russia is 66%. I mean, th- those are fairly wealthy people. The, the, the percentage of people making less than 50 grand who believe we need to you know, further engage is 31%. And I think the, the 31% represents a, an awareness that America First has brought on uh, to, a, to a big universe of people who were just politically misfit. I mean, they, they didn't have a home. They didn't know where to align. They knew what they believed, but they weren't sure if they were a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent or a Libertarian. They just didn't, they didn't go that deep into understanding some of the philosophies and ideologies of the political party. But, but they knew, they suspected, Rev. Here, here's a better way of explaining it. They suspected something that Trump verbalized. But they knew how much more complicated their life was. They knew it was much, um, when you're making, you know, I'm talking about inflation. I mean, they didn't say, hey, does the government misrepresent inflation or not? And, and I go back to a story that a guy that worked for me at AA Builders said, and I'll never forget it. Um, he said, you got a minute when I get off work? I said, yeah, of course I do. I want to talk to you. So he said, I know what it's about. It's about a raise. So we sat down, and he wanted a dollar an hour more. And, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, hey, man, all I know is this. A six-pack of beer has gone up five times since I got a raise. That hit me in the head. I mean, could I because could, I could be a little disconnected from that. I mean, once again, uh, my father owned the company, so I was different than they were. And they knew that, and I knew that. 
but there was a certain respect we had for one another. But when, when that guy said a six-pack of beer has gone up five times since I got a raise, the political class doesn't give a rat's rear end. I mean, you know, just figure it out, dude. And I'm not saying Trump's sincere or insincere. I'm not arguing whether he means it or not. But, but he related to a universe of people who did not have a political home. Now they feel they do. And it's a powerful political force, but it has to mature. And I think part of the maturity is organizing around the 800-pound gorilla that's not going to be there very much longer. And he obviously was on to something by the nature of the way the establishment fought back well, he's against the most, him and all of us. He's the most powerful political figure in America today. Turn on CNN, turn on MSNBC, read the New York Times, read the Washington Post, watch Lester Holt for three minutes on the, uh, on the CBS evening or NBC evening news. They'll bring up Trump. He's no longer in office, but it's still Trump, Trump, Trump. And, and, and I think when you, when you really get in the weeds of this, it is not just Donald Trump. It is those that Dr. Thigpen was willing to say when I asked, because I asked Doc, I said, Doc, you just don't really care that the Trump voter become a Republican voter. And he said, and I quote, I suppose that's right. The Republican Party has historically been dominated by, by the elites, by the establishment. It's morphed or manifested itself into, evolved, I guess would be a better way of saying it, when the coastal elites took over the Democrat Party and became transgenderism and climate change, the American working class said, ah, I got to find a new place to reside. And Trump gave them a place to reside. But once again, it must mature if it's going to be highly effective. Back in a minute. The late Charlie Daniels band, we put Cato in charge of the music. That's kind of our, um, our tribute to him as he goes on to bigger and better things. Good choice. I just wonder if Charlie Daniels, I mean, you know, you never did think that it ever would happen again, but it did. We sure fooled you. I left out some of the profanity there because I'll make up for it uh, before long. Um, when asked whether they'd flee or fight an invading force, um, Quinnipiac asked that poll or asked that question, took a poll, um, basically asking Americans if you would. I mean, it's a simple question. Would you fight or flee? I mean, would you stay here? And um, I saw an MMA fighter. Tucker Carlson had him on his show a couple of nights ago. What did he last night? Had a clip of him a couple of nights ago. Had him on the show last night. And the guy said, look, man, I don't understand the complexities of the world. I know my grammar's bad, but um, I don't trust those people who are telling us what we need to do about Ukraine and Russia. And I'm not dying over there. And I don't want people I love dying over there. You know, it, it, it really, the fundamental argument is this. And, and, and there are a lot of tentacles. I mean, there is. There, there's a lot of different arguments to have. But the fundamental argument is our distrust for our, our leadership. I mean, I said yesterday at lunch to a friend of mine, said it earlier this morning, that, that, you know, I feel like the people who get it right more than anybody are those that don't trust anything they're told. I mean, it's, it's kind of a play on that conspiracy theory T-shirt. You know, I need another conspiracy theory t-shirt because all the others came true and you still get a different look kind of an odd look when you say something like that you get an odd look um the the company line historically has been with someone like putin it, you, you naturally correlated to hitler right and then we kind of got to get in line because nobody wants the second world war nazi germany and the holocaust and I mean, the, the horrific tragedy of humanity that, that was associated with a 
you know, a, a regime trying to exterminate one race of people from the planet Earth. I mean, nobody wants to be associated with not stopping something like that from happening. What, what is out there to suggest that Putin has those sorts of ambitions? I mean, if we're going to make that comment and insinuate that those are realistic ambitions, what is out there? I mean, what, what has Putin ever done? It's uh, only just being expansionist. Well, I mean, yeah, but I, and, I, and I get, and I understand being aware and being afraid and being nervous. But, but we're the, the reason that I don't personally. I mean, I, I'll say this: I am a non-interventionist because of our military leadership. And I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the rank and file military man and woman. Please understand, I'm not arguing that. I'm talking about the political hierarchy, the, the, the folks that reside in the Pentagon and make their way over to Capitol Hill or the White House periodically. Those are the ones that I don't have much faith in, most, uh, a lot of trust in. So when you tell me as a political leader or a military leader that the reason we need to do these things is because of what Hitler did you know, in the late 30s and early 40s, um, exterminating a race of people, it's hard for me to get there because you're telling me this and everything else you've told me up until now has proven to be untrue or inaccurate. You know, we were talking yesterday about the difference is, and you've kind of scratched your head on this, what, what is the difference in Putin invading sovereign Ukraine and America invading sovereign Iraq? What is the difference? Well, one's not a madman. You know, one is a madman on the move. One is trying to stop a madman. Uh, that's what you were told. I mean, that's what you subconsciously believe. Weapons of mass destruction well, is me, what we were told. Well, to. I mean, okay, did we cook the books? There, there's an even better story. I mean, did we intentionally mislead the American people into believing? I mean, there, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein at some point in time had weapons of mass destruction because he used them against his own people. That's not what we were told. We were told we've got to overthrow his regime because he has weapons of mass destruction. There was an S on the end of that word, not a D. Nobody debated whether he had weapons of mass destruction. We were told there was real-time intelligence that said he has weapons of mass destruction. We never found any. So when Putin invades sovereign Ukraine, we can go anywhere we choose to go. You can go this Third World War and Hitler and all these other sorts of things. We invaded a sovereign nation based on faulty information. Was it intentionally misleading or not? Did we just get it wrong or, or did we mean to get it wrong? Do you trust Dick Cheney? Do you trust Donald Rumsfeld? I mean, don't, don't we argue that the Bush doctrine was globalist in nature? I mean, it's hard to argue that the Bush doctrine the Bush period of the Republican Party was not an expansionist, imperialistic worldview. I mean, these are debates that, that, that we must have. Previously, before America First, we didn't have these debates. It was kind of a Republican-Democrat. Here's what's so interesting about today. The non-interventionists are in the Republican Party. Even the isolationists are in the Republican Party. The skeptics of military are in the Republican Party. You ask a Democrat. Do you trust the military leadership at the Pentagon? The majority of Democrats will say yes. U.S. Republicans, the establishment Republican still does. The elite Republican still does. The America Firster emphatically does not trust that leadership. And it reflects in the polling. It reflects in some of this data. And that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. You know, we're talking about 
uh, the, the, the banning of Russian oil yesterday, President Biden announced that. Joe's right. I mean, there, there were some meetings on Capitol Hill between Republicans and Democrats. They were heading that way any, anyhow. I mean, the, the legislative branch was going to probably adopt policy um, that, that was going to go to the White House, but the president wanted to get ahead of it. I think some Democrats gave him a heads up. And so, President Biden, you, you don't want to be behind this. I mean, this is something Republicans and Democrats. Um, but you know what Vladimir Putin has done before? I mean, he's argued. He, he's he's um he's let us know. He's let it be known that if you ever embargo my um exporting of fuel, I refuse to supply Europe. So what happens there? I mean, we're 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 refusing to accept six hundred thousand barrels a day of Russian crude oil. What happens if Putin says, okay? Um, if I'm going broke, I'm going big. If I'm going down, I'm swinging for the fence. So as America decided to ban um, my oil from entering, you know, the, 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 the American marketplace, I'm going to refuse to supply Europe. What does Germany do? What does Italy do? What does France do? What do all those European Union countries do? 40% of all the, the oil comes from Germany, I mean, of Russia, 25% of all the gas comes from Russia. The only answer to this, and, and here's where the, the West has gotten in its own way. The West has given in to, to what I call the liberal mindset. I'm not talking about neoclassical liberalism. I'm talking about modern woke liberalism, government, uh, you, you know, uh, f- fond of government liberalism. But, but the Americans, not, not just the Americans, the, the, the Western world has made unbelievably careless and reckless decisions in regard to its sovereignty and independence. And the only movement, and it's kind of a contrast here, that the political establishment of England almost tried to figure out a way to overrule the will of the people. The people of Great Britain decided uh, that they wanted to, they did not want to be a part of the European Union. The political leadership did everything within its power to not allow the will of the people to take place. And I'm talking about Brexit. The, the, about, I mean, there have been very similar things that have happened in America over the past 20 or 25 years. So, so the American government says we're not accepting, we're banning any Russian oil from making its way to the American marketplace. What if Putin today had a press conference at 10 o'clock and announced that he is no longer exporting oil to Europe? What do the European countries do? Where do they get their energy from? We have no, you, you got to go, and this is Trump's, this is Trump's business training. Trump believes that when you go into a negotiation, you've got to have leverage. If we go negotiate with China and we don't have any manufacturing capacity, who has the leverage? If we negotiate with with Saudi Arabia or Russia or, or Iraq or Iran and we're not producing capacity energy, who has the leverage? Words on a sheet of paper are just that. They're words on a sheet of paper. I mean, Buttigieg and, and Saki and Stephen Colbert, for that matter, they're silly people, that they're not serious people. That they, I call it the, the governing by simulator. You know, let's get in this flight simulator and see what the world looks like if half the country drive a Tesla. But we know that's not realistic. We know there is zero chance of that becoming reality, but we talk about it anyway. We become infatuated with this green orthodoxy, this green energy belief. 
It's silly. It's unserious. And it's led to this circumstance and this situation where we're depending on people that don't like us and we don't much care for them to provide something as essential, not as toothpaste, not as polo shirts, as energy and manufacturing. I mean, t- tell me th- two things more important than energy and manufacturing. What if India decided today to no longer export generic drugs? They make about 90% of generic drugs that America consumes. What if we had a falling out with India today? Who has the leverage? I mean, what if the leadership of India, an emerging country, mind you, I mean, we're an established democracy. What what if a fledgling emerging country like India sat down and we began negotiating some sort of trade deal? And India all of a sudden said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll stop producing generic medications. We've hollowed out our leverage. We don't have the sort of leverage. We are an unbelievably powerful country. We're horribly governed. I mean, that's kind of the game changer here. I mean, if we were the most powerful country on the planet and we were effectively and efficiently governed we would have, in, in every negotiation we ever entered, we would be in a position of leverage. But when we negotiate with Russia, they have as much leverage as we do. When we negotiate with China, they have more leverage than we do. And that's not mine nor your fault. That's political leadership's failing to represent the interests of the people instead of corporate America. And uh, anyway, let's go to the vault. Glenda in Florence. Hello, you're on the air. Hi, Mr. Art. I'm. This whole thing with Ukraine's kind of got me confused. I have a question. Wasn't it the Ukrainians that came over and testified against Trump during his first impeachment? I'll just get off there and see what you have to say. Thank you. Okay. Yes, it was. It was some Ukrainian business people um, that they paraded. And I mean, I think there were, I'd have to refresh my memory on this. Remember when the Biden administration charged, was it Russians or Ukrainians? I mean, it was a, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, uh, a circus trial. I mean, there was nothing there. But remember, I'll have to go back and look. Was it Ukrainians or Russians that were charged with multiple offenses in the Russia collusion investigation? Remember the Russia collusion investigation, and there were multiple either Russian or Ukrainian business people that were charged. Um, how deep in bed is the Biden family with some of the, uh, some of the Ukrainian energy sector? I mean, we know that Hunter Biden served on the board of the largest Ukrainian energy exporting business, Burisma. I mean, we know that. Hunter Biden has no experience in energy, but he served on the board of a Ukrainian energy company called Burisma. $50,000 a month gig, right? 50 grand a month was what he was paid. I mean, it's, it's, it's comical that we've allowed ourselves to get to this place. So the president of the United States has a kid who served on an energy or on a board of directors for a Ukrainian industry or a Ukrainian energy company, and now we're debating whether or not to involve ourselves in a war between Russia, and you, you can't make it up. Back in a minute. You know, at times, politics can be a highfalutin academic exercise. At other times, it can just be brutally honest. I mean, it's right there at the price of gasoline, and um, there, there are a lot of contributors that have gone into this, but, but as most of us know, I mean, I know I spent 22 bucks um, day before yesterday that I normally don't spend to fill my pickup truck. I mean, that doesn't fundamentally change the way I live my life, but that's $22 that I don't have to do something other than put gas in my truck. So it does have an economic impact. Uh, where do we go from here? I don't have any idea. I mean, I honestly don't. Um, 
oil's down a bit today. I looked on Bloomberg a second ago. Oil's down a bit today, even after the uh, the American government chose to ban uh, Russian oil from entering uh, the American marketplace. Putin may threaten now to um, to not provide Europe with oil. So it's a um, it's a conundrum, shall I say? But uh, but it's not highfalutin academic exercising in, in in most Americans' world. It's just the price of gas is at an all time high. Fox News Radio's Tanya. Jay Powers is with us from New York City. That's where everybody rides the subway, um, the cab. Um, Tanya does it. I mean, you're, you're not originally from New York. You live in New York now. But but do people in New York pay as close attention to the price of gas as, say, in South Carolina, where people have um, a longer than normal commute back and forth to work? Um, it's It depends on – yeah, I, I would say yes and no. I mean, the people who live – uh, in the city in Manhattan or one of the five boroughs is probably not as likely to have to drive. Now, there are a lot of people who commute in. Um, many of my coworkers drive in from New Jersey, um, you know, or Westchester, uh, you know, upstate from here. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who drive into the city that this definitely will will be a problem for uh, because you're talking about, I mean, it's really expensive to park your car here, which is why a lot of us who live here just don't have one. Uh, it's more of a hassle than it's, than it's worth most of the time, which is, you know, why, uh, but to pay to park in a parking garage is really expensive. Um, on top of that, you've got the tolls in and out of the city that are going to cost you and, you know, extra gas prices on top of all that may mean some of them are now trying to figure out, okay, can I take the train in? Is that going to be easier? <laughs> Where am I going to park if I'm going to do that? I mean, it's a whole thing. So, so is for some people, yeah, it is going to affect them in, in this area. Um, you're looking at the uh, the gas prices this morning. The AAA folks say that today, uh, as of this morning, the U.S. average for a gallon of regular is 425. Yesterday it was 417, and yesterday had broken a record from July of 2008 when it was 411. So we just continue to keep, you know, breaking the records as far as, as where, where are we going, you know, this uh, you know, this week. Um, when you are looking at the different states, where is it? There's only 15 states at this point in the U.S. where it's below $4 a, a gallon right now. You guys are just over it with 402 a gallon for an average um, for for that. Now, if you're if you drive a diesel vehicle, oh, my, my heart goes out to you. Because it is it is a it is a whole different thing for for folks you know with diesel at this point, um, you know the average uh, for a gallon of diesel uh, at right now uh, it looks like that's about uh, four eighty eight for the national average for a gallon of of diesel fuel. So you know and that that's going to affect a lot of folks, especially you know folks who have you know farms and and you know I, I grew up on a farm. I remember we had to have diesel for everything. Um, you know, if diesel prices go up, that's that's taking a bite out of, out of your bottom line. Uh, in South Carolina right now, the diesel average price is 484. So you're almost there with the national average. And Tanya, I mean, from from a news perspective, I mean, the news story is the price of gas is is higher than it's ever been. But but is there any help on the way? I mean, it, when I read and I try to understand, I do four hours of radio every morning. I want to be somewhat informed to, to engage my audience with uh, with realities. And I don't see any reason to be optimistic. It looks to me like there's a better chance it pushes five or five fifty than it is for it to go back to three and a quarter or three dollars. Uh, what is the news story there? Yeah, I mean, when you look at where it's been uh, in the past, 
uh, well, a month ago, it, it was 70, 72 cents cheaper a gallon of the national average was. Uh, just last week, it was 55 cents cheaper. Um, I'm sure there are more than more than a couple of folks who are kicking themselves for not going ahead and filling up last week, thinking, well, I don't know, is it going to get worse? Um, because, yes, it has. Uh, as you said, you know, from a news standpoint of this, it's just kind of, you know, you're keeping an eye on what's happening as far as the average price and how it's just steadily rising at this point, but also how it ties into, you know, the bigger news picture of, you know, Russia and Ukraine. Uh, yesterday, we, you know, as, as I'm sure you have already talked about uh, on your show, the president announcing the ban on importing Russian energy into the U.S. Um, it's been, it's been the reaction to that has been really interesting. You know, there's there's a lot of people who say that they're not just huge fans of Joe Biden, but that this was the right move to stop Russian energy, you know, from coming into the U.S. and and not giving them that, you know, it's one more way to kind of cut them off. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting to watch the different uh, industries and the different entities, American businesses especially. I mean, yesterday when Starbucks and McDonald's and Coke said, "Yeah, we're gonna, we're not gonna, you know, do business in Russia anymore," um, I thought that was a that was a, another kind of big thing that happened. I don't remember. Now you may remember this, but maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention to the news at one point in my life. But I don't remember. American businesses ever doing that in Russia before? Maybe I mean, especially not after the Cold War was were ended. Totally agree, and and I'll and I'll say this. I mean, this this drags you off of the uh, reporter path onto the uh, the editor's path, and I'm not going to do that. But th- there's no doubt the West is winning the argument of symbolism, but math is still math, mm-hmm. and two plus two yeah. still equals four, and that's my grave concern. Um, I think Putin has squandered. Uh, the PR side, <laughs> but communists probably don't do as well in PR as liberty-loving uh, democracies do. But it's just, I mean, it's, uh, it is challenging for the American public to have to spend as much money as they are on, uh, I mean, inflation was already in place and at record levels, and now this um, this this added ingredient of gas at an all-time high makes it real difficult for the American working class. It does. It makes it, diff- it, makes it difficult for everybody. I mean, because if you're spending more on it's the same. It's the same thing when we when we see you know we, when you talk about healthcare prices. If you're spending more on healthcare and you're trying to afford your prescriptions every month and they've just gone through the roof, you're like, okay, well, what else do I cut? You know, it's the same with gas prices and things like that. They're that necessary. You've got to get to and from. You got to go to work in order to earn you know the money to put food on the table and pay for your health care and, and everybody's prescriptions and you know new shoes and what else whatever else is needed. And there's only so much to go around. It does get it does get pretty pretty rough. Um, I'll be interested to see, honestly, if some of these companies don't say, "Hey, gas prices are insane right now. Why don't we utilize some more of this remote working where people don't have to leave their house as much?" Because if you're not commuting to work, you're not saying, "Okay, that's an extra twenty five dollars or thirty or forty or whatever that I'm going to have to put in my tank right now." If if that is chosen as an option to keep people from having to commute as much, that will be that will be interesting. I think that would be kind of out of the ordinary. I don't I don't look to see a lot of companies doing that, but if they did, it could cut out some of the you know the, the pain at the pump, so to speak, for regular working folks. Very interesting, Tanya. Thank you for your time. Have a great day. Mm-hmm. And I want to go back to the symbolism debate. I mean, I'm reading something here. Ian Bremmer is the president of political risk consultancy at the Eurasia Group. I've read some things he says, and he's very enlightening. I mean, he's very interesting. He says, and I quote, NATO is united, more so now than at any point since the Soviet collapse, with a renewed sense of purpose and mission. 
I, I, you know, I buy that. Um, when you look at the condemnation of Russian aggression across the board with the Western world, um, I buy that. So, so there's no question that Putin has squandered the PR side of this. I mean, we're winning. The West is winning in the war symbolism. But, but two plus two equals, still equals four. Russia and Saudi Arabia and a couple of other communist countries, and I don't want to say Saudi Arabia is not a communist country. I mean, it's a, um, it's a religiously governed country. It's a, it, it's a Muslim form of government. I mean, it's, a, um, I mean, it's an authoritarian. What, what help me here, Rev? I mean, it's a um, totalitarian. Total, uh, totalitarian is the word I'm looking for. I mean, it's a, it's a totalitarian form of government, uh, but, but it's, it's a prince. I mean, it's a royal family. They, you know, uh, they, they decide the fate and future of the people of that country. Um, but it's still a very, it's, it's similar to Putin in that that is, it's, it's a single authority. It is, it's totalitarian in nature. Um, so about 35%, one of every three gallons the world consumes is generated or produced by a totalitarian form of government, not a democracy, not a representative republic. Um, about 40% of the world's manufacturing is in a similar fashion. So at the end of the day, uh, the symbolic nature of this debate, and Ian Bremmer, uh, who is a, um, the president of a risk consultancy company uh, that, that specializes in international politics, yeah, we, we win that, and we feel better about that. When we condemn, when McDonald's pulls out of uh, Russia, and Starbucks pulls out of Russia, and our, our good friends Pepsi-Cola pulls out of Russia— I mean, it, you know, it, symbolically, it makes you feel a little bit more patriotic, and, and there's a business ethic involved in that. Um, look at what Pepsi-Cola did. That teaches Putin a lesson, does it? The problem with the price of gas, those that can affect, do affect, will affect the change in the price of gas, don't, they're not very concerned what the price of gas is. I mean, do you believe that Stephen Colbert, I mean, Colbert said um, yesterday or last night on the show, might have been the night before, a couple of nights ago, when he says, you know, I'm willing to pay an extra buck. I mean, there, there, there's some, um, your conscious, a clear conscious has a price. So if I'm, um, and this is symbolism. I mean, this is symbolic in nature again. And it's easy for him to say, too, he's rich. Well, he makes $16 billion a year, and he drives a $150,000 Tesla. I mean, it's insulting to the American people. When someone stands before you, and says to you that you're not as um you're not as virtuous as they are because you're worried about the price of gas and you would aid and abet Russia just to fill your tank up with gas. Now 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 understand you're making forty grand a year, fifty grand a year. He's making sixteen million grand a year. He has no right lecturing to you on your virtue. He doesn't live in a world similar to you. He doesn't face the same challenges, and that's the problem in America today. The people that control the country are completely and totally unrelatable to those who don't. I mean, if you're a man and a woman living in Pamplico, South Carolina, my hometown, and you commute back and forth to work every day, you're probably going to spend about $75 or $80 this week filling those two vehicles up with gas that you wouldn't normally spend. So guess what you aren't doing Friday night? You aren't going to your favorite restaurant. You aren't going to the movie. You aren't going to uh, shop. You aren't going to Target to buy your your son or daughter or whatever it is you buy them for sixty or seventy or eighty dollars. The the average American is going to spend about twenty five hundred dollars more this year on fuel than they ever have. They're going to spend about twelve hundred fifty dollars more 
as a result of inflation on food. So you're spending about $2,500 on gas. You're spending about $1,250 on food. I mean, that's $3,750. And that's net. I mean, that's, 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 you know, that's net income. I mean, you, you know, um, can I get my tax credit on fuel? Can I get my tax credit on, uh, on food? You don't, you don't get that. So you, unless you got a $3,750 net raise, gross would be different, probably be five grand. Unless you've got a $5,000 raise, the Biden administration and his policies have cost you $3,750 net. I mean, that's a big deal in most people's world. That's a huge amount of money in most people's world. But that's where we are. Does Biden care? He's worth millions. Does Pelosi care? She's worth millions. Stephen Colbert told you what to do. You got to be more virtuous. You got to suffer. You got to pay a little more at the pump to teach Putin a lesson while he makes $16 million a year and drives $150,000 Tesla. I don't have a problem with Colbert making $16 million. I don't have a problem with Colbert driving a $150,000 Tesla. But damn it, don't tell me how I should feel because that's the way you do. Back in a minute. 843 661 Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Melissa in Florence. Hello, Melissa. You're on the air. Uh, yes, Ken. Um, you may have already addressed this this morning, but, um, you know, I've tried to get tickets for the rally. I have friends from Charleston trying to get tickets for the rally. And we haven't heard anything. Do you know anything about what that procedure is? We've gone online, requested, we registered, we're waiting. Oh, the only thing I know, I, I sent Rev and uh, Kato something yesterday. They just informed me that there's more to that than I thought there was. <laughs> yes. um, the, the tickets, I, I'm going to do something I shouldn't do, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Don't worry about having a ticket. I mean, if you want to go to the event, go to the event. That they, they want as large a crowd there as they can possibly have. I would imagine um, going online and getting a ticket is, is a way that they can kind of track attendance and say there were 7,000 or 8,000 or 10,000 people there. But if you want to go to the event and you know others that want to go to the event, go. Don't, don't concern okay. yourself or be alarmed with not being able to find tickets. Um, the one thing, and, and, I'll, and I'll say this, the one thing about Save America that I found they don't do a real good job logistically. I mean, I've complained to Rev about it. It's got to do better at taking care of the people who want to go to these events. Um, it's just not as well run as it should be. Forgive me for saying that, but it's just not as um, it's it's just not run as I would imagine Trump wants it run. I don't know if he knows how terribly these things are are done or not, but um, but I think we had Carl Carlsman to multiple uh, Trump rallies. And he agrees with me, I think. I, mean, I don't know if Carl's listening now. Maybe he can call in and maybe we'll get Carl to call tomorrow. But but there, if you want to go and you know others that want to go, go. You, you will you will participate. You'll have a good time. Uh, you, you'll see a lot of politicking going on. But I think the reason they're asking people to go online and request tickets is so they can keep up uh, with sort of a head count on their end. Okay. Thanks, Ken. Thank you very much. Now, if you're willing to write a big check, I mean, I can give you multiple opportunities. <laughs> Russell Fry, who is a Trump-endorsed candidate, the GOP, and the, the Save America Super PAC, there will be, dare I say, opportunities for you who are willing to write a $5,000 check, a $3,000 check, a, a $1,000 check, a $5,000 check. If I'm not mistaken, and I'll try to check on this during the next break, um, there is a, there, there's a $99 ticket. 
that allows you some sort of ex- ex- exclusivity. I don't think, I mean, obviously you don't get your picture taken with the former president. You don't get backstage passes and all these other sorts of and things. that's one of those opportunities, I think, through the SEGOP. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. it's either the GOP or the Fry campaign. Um, but once again, Save America is here. The GOP is here. And Russell Fry's campaign is here. So it's kind of a trifecta. Now, I think Katie Arrington will be here, but this is not her congressional district. I think she'll be given a few moments to speak. And I told Russell the other day, I said, you know, Trump will give you enough room on that stage for one leg, not two legs. So if you can balance yourself on one leg on the edge of the uh, – Trump's not much on sharing that notoriety. You know what I mean? I mean, you, I, I think you guys would agree with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- this will be Donald Trump on full display. Now, he's coming, no question, to endorse um, or to, to, to basically – I mean, he's already endorsed. I guess this is the, um, this is the up close and personal of the endorsement, the follow-up. But um, but but I've heard people in days gone by that said I had a hard time getting a ticket. I couldn't go online. Uh, you know, the computer wouldn't let me do what I needed to do. Um, I'm not heard of anybody being turned away. Yeah, they're not turning anybody. So, so away. I would encourage you. I mean, if you want to go to the rally, go to the rally. If you know friends of yours that want to go to the rally, go to the rally. Um, and that's not your fault because these things are I mean, they're difficult to put together anyway. And then you got a guy not running for office. So, so he can be a little loose and fast. Um, you know, you, you got surrogates taking care of certain things. Some of these people do a good job. Some don't do as good a job as they should. Um, I'm, I'm an honorary co-chair, and I honestly this morning don't know exactly what's expected of me. <laughs> I see your name is on this. Uh, it looks like an official um, announcement about the rally, and uh, there's a list of all the uh, – state co-chairs and your name's right up there. There's a so lot of politicos, uh, current and former, yeah. you know, that, that have kind of bought into some of this America first energy within. Lou Holtz is on the list yeah, too. Lou Holtz and oh. um, I'm trying to think of who else. There, there's a couple of um, non-political affiliates. Um, Ed McMullen will be with us in just a second. Ed's going to uh, call in at about 9.05 this morning and Ed is a former ambassador to Switzerland. Um, Ed is one of the guys that keeps me kind of in the loop with, with the goings on of Save America. Um, I think our buddy Robert Cahaley will be here I mean, it'll be a um, it'll be an interesting event, and and it'll be very interesting to watch the um, because in a weird way, the GOP is in competition with Save America. I mean, money is a finite resource. The donor class has a lot, but it's only so much. So, how much of the donors class money is going to fund the GOP, and how much of the donors class money is going to fund Save America? And that's kind of where we are today. But um, but once again, there is kind of three events in one. Russell Fry will have an event that includes uh, the rally. Save America will have an event and kind of a designated area that will include the rally. And then the, the SCGOP, Drew McKissick, um, state chairman of the SCGOP, will be with us tomorrow. He's calling in to kind of talk about what, what their role and responsibility are in this. But, but they're, you know, they're, we, we got to sort through this as Republicans. Um, the, the donor class Republican and what I'll call the America First Republican, have to understand that we're not the Democrats. That, that happened in this past election. We knew many, many, many Republicans who went over and voted for Joe Biden. I mean, I don't know if they regret that or not. I hope they do, because if they're real Republicans, they can't have done that and not regret it. Inflation rampant, uh, gas as high as it's ever been, refusing to be energy independent, um, dealing with China in a very different way, not securing the southern border. Um, it's just a unique animal, and Republicans were a part of that. 
because we know some Republicans jumped the fence, so to speak, and voted for Joe Biden because they thought he would be more manageable and predictable and normal. So there are a lot of um, disagreements within that have to be sorted out. And I guess these sorts of events are where the GOP and Save America <laughs> um, sort one another out. <laughs> I, you know, I, it, I just, it's interesting to me. I was talking to somebody last night with the GOP, and I said, hey, man, I, I, I am signed up as a co-chair, not with the GOP, but with Save America. Am I competing with the GOP? Not that anybody cares, but I want to know my responsibility to this. I mean, where am I lined up? I am an America first Republican, but I don't want to do anything to hurt the SCGOP. I don't have any interest in hurting the SCGOP. And he said, well, those are some things we're trying to figure out. <laughs> and I'll just leave it there. But we, we know they'll both be there. Sure. Represented. No, no question about so, it. Let's, let's go to the phone. Here is uh, Bert. Well, Bert. I don't know if we have time to go to the phone. Uh, we got about... 40, Quick. Well, yeah, 45 seconds. Yeah, or Bert wants to call back later. I don't, Bert, you want to Bert, try? you got a lot of words this time, or can you do it fast? Well, I can't do it too fast because I've, I've got some stuff to talk about Putin. Today. Okay, well, hang on, hang on. I, I want to be fair to you, and, and I've, I've rambled a bit there trying to explain to our, our listeners what they need to do. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937, last hour of today's show. <laughs> Let's go to Bert. Let's there you be go. another good choice there on the bumper nice. music. Here. Good choice. Cato's having a free run at it. We're not yeah. questioning anything he does between now and Friday when he says "Adios, amigos." I'm out of here. Let's go to the phone. Bert, you still there, man? Yeah, he's been playing some really good music. I have to say. <laughs> uh, all right, I know you're trying to get away from Putin, but I got to point this out because I'm not hearing enough of this. I'm not hearing it, it hardly anything. But what we're getting, all this information that we're getting. It's from the left. It's from the mainstream media, from the left. Putin's horrible. He attacked for no reason, blah, blah, blah. Well, who lies to us with every single breath? We have tracked and tracked and tracked, and every time they tell us something, it turns out to be a lie. Now, we know the Bidens are, you know, neck deep in deals with Ukraine. We know what kind of crooked stuff's going on over there. So, we know the, the leader of Ukraine is an actor, so why anybody's trusting him? I don't know. Maybe they're going back and saying, well, we trusted Reagan. That turned out great, you know. But Putin himself is saying that the U.S. was slowly creeping in, helping Ukraine creep in on them and putting weapons on his border. And he is simply defending his country and trying to take back what we've already stolen from him. And he includes us and the Ukrainians in that. So from his point of view, we're the aggressor, you know, and we know we've seen video of that is just questionable at least. I mean, I've seen piles of bodies that were supposedly blown up out of this where they're not in pieces and they look like somebody just laid down on top of each other. I'm, I'm sorry. They, it, it looks as fake as you remember the white hats, how fake they were. This has the same exact feeling. So I think they're, oh, and not to mention Putin is saying some of the stuff they're claiming he blew up, he hasn't touched. He has nothing to do with that. He hasn't struck anything like that. So I'm hearing lie after lie after lie. Now it ain't proven yet, but look how many lies we've caught them in already. And why would we think for one second that this is any different? I think Putin's not the bad guy here. I think we are the aggressor, and we are making deals with Ukraine to use them for public show. 
Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. Here's I'll offer interesting too. But I'll give I mean I'll give a cliff note commentary real quick, and then we'll go to our guest. I know not to trust Russia. I don't know whether or not to trust Ukraine. I mean, I don't have any idea. I'm not a foreign policy expert. I'm not an international diplomat. I don't understand um, the new finagled Ukraine. I mean, they say they've embraced Western democracies. Maybe they have. Maybe they haven't. I don't know. I mean, when the Soviet Union dissolved in 1991, Ukraine has been on a, we're told, I mean, I don't know to believe this or not, we're told that they have tried to advance closer and closer and closer to a Western culture, Western society, Western um, values. I don't know if that's true or not. I know to not trust Vladimir Putin and Russia. I don't know what to think or what to make of um, Ukraine. And, And the point I've tried to make over and over again over the airwaves if we're going to commit a military um, effort and be further engaged or involved in what's happening in Ukraine today, we need to do it with a certain degree of certainty and assuredness. And I don't have that. Lindsey Graham may have that. So some of the hawks in Washington may have that. Some of the military leadership may very, be very confident in what to do or what not to do. Well, I'm I don't, not. I also don't know what to make of the Biden family relationships well, I mean, in re- Ukraine. I mean, but, that's but, a question. But I'm talking that's about— It's not answered. I, I agree with that. But there's always been a confrontation, and, and, and it's some of it's symbolism and some of it's math, but there's always been a clash of Western culture and, and communist regimes. Communist regimes do not celebrate— human dignity or democracy or or human rights or independence or liberties and freedoms the western world does so there's always been this um i don't know that this this pinnacle of conflict that is um always brewing or percolating but when it comes to what we should or should not do i don't know i mean i I honestly don't know and and you know i think bird hits on a very valid point how many times recently have the as the international opinion leaders been right I'm going to go all the way back to Vietnam. Since Vietnam, how many of our military excursions have turned out as we were told they were going to turn out? That's my concern. But I want to be as crystal clear as I can. I know not to trust Russia led by Vladimir Putin. I don't know what to make of Ukraine. I have no idea how close Ukraine was to joining NATO. I mean, I've read it's not very close. I don't have any idea what sort of buffer Putin expects from Mother Russia. Is, is, is Putin a Soviet expansionist? Yeah. He's also a Soviet nostalgist. I mean, he wants to get the band back together. Does that include Hungary and Poland and, and other parts of Europe? Don't have any idea. But there are so many people that are saying things with such certainty that, that you, you can't say you know these things, that there's only a handful of people in the world, in the Western world in particular, who understand the nuances of, of these sorts of relationships and, and international diplomacy at that level. Um, here's what I do know, and I said it earlier and I'll say it again. The Western world is winning the debate of symbolism. I mean, when McDonald's closes 850 restaurants, when Starbucks closes 100 coffee shops, when Pepsi and Coke agree to, you know, to remove themselves from Russia as one of their markets. I mean, that, that's very symbolic, and it does create this, um, this international community of condemnation of Russian aggression. But math is still math. And Russia is still a big energy producer. And Russia has a very deep relationship with China, who has an incredible manufacturing presence. So whether we like this or not, symbolism at the end of the day does not win and win alone. It matters, no question about it. It helps couch the argument in one perspective or another. But math is math. And until we 
as Americans, force our political leadership to be more serious about our manufacturing capacities and our energy producing capacities, we're always going to lack leverage in some of these international forays and debates. So there, I mean, that's as close as I can give and kind of encapsulating my opinion of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. Um, There are some things I know. There are a lot of things I don't know. And I need to be real damn sure before we put American treasure on the line. That's my point and perspective. Hey, Ed McMullen is with us. Ed understands the world a lot better than I do. Ed was very kind to me when I ran for political office. Um, Ed was a supporter. He and I actually met in Charleston back in the day uh, about the Trump candidacy. Did it have a chance to win? Ed was one of the few who did believe Donald Trump had a chance to be American, an American president. I felt that way. I wanted some confirmation. I wanted a smart guy to tell me why I wasn't crazy and why I thought Trump could win. So Ed and I had lunch one day, and um, he convinced me then. Ed then became the ambassador to Switzerland as a part of the Trump administration. He's with us this morning. Ed, good morning. How are you? Ken, good morning. Sounds like you're having a good, heated discussion. We always do on uh, Imagine Conservative Talk Radio having a heated a heated discussion. But you're not here to talk about international affairs. I'm sure you could, and I'm sure you'd welcome that opportunity. But you're here to talk about an issue here in South Carolina. I grew up in a Baptist church. Uh, I grew up in the buckle of the Bible belt, so to speak, in rural South Carolina. But I've always wondered why there's so much inconsistency with our blue laws. We've addressed some of those in a, in a myriad of fashions, and now we have another opportunity with what they call H3013. What is H3013, and what are you here to speak on behalf of, not, yeah. not advocating for or against, but to let South Carolinians decide what they think the best way to address this issue is? Right, right. No, but boil it down in a nutshell, you know, why is an ambassador come back from Switzerland and focus on this issue? Uh, South Carolina is my home. Charleston is where I live. And um, I have actually got a business interest in Europe, which uh, is a, a vineyard in Italy where, uh, you know, we, we, we make a lot of wine in Italy and we bring it back to the U.S. and sell it without any problem. We sell it on Sundays. We sell it in liquor stores. We sell it in supermarkets. We sell it, sell it. Uh, well, not supermarkets. We don't have the ability to do that yet. Uh, well, yes, we do. Some wines can be sold in supermarkets, but um, in the end, uh, one of the things that I got constantly asked about in Europe uh, from the community that we work with is why in the world can, can we not sell our grappa, uh, which is a, a remnant of wine that they take the wine and distill it and make it into an after dinner drink in, in the United States and some of the other distilled spirits that cannot be sold in the United States. Any kind of liquor or distilled spirit is uh, on Sundays in South Carolina. Uh, not most of the United States. You can do this. There are three or four states where we still have blue laws. Um, all blue, blue laws for 20 years have been suspended and, and they're no longer in existence and everybody's moving along, existing just fine. And the reality is that, um, you know, local referendums have been held throughout the state for 20 years that let voters decide if beer and wine can be sold in stores on Sundays in their county. And so the question then becomes, why can't you do that with distilled spirits? And uh, this bill will actually give people in South Carolina the ability to purchase uh, distilled spirits on 
Sundays if they, in their communities, hold a referendum and enable that to happen. And there are some communities, like you said, going up in the Bible Belt and Baptist Church, where some counties where, or, or, or municipalities where they don't want that, and they, they can stop that through the referendum. But then there are very large counties that rely on tourism and, and other uh, uh, investments that require uh, that kind of freedom or would like that kind of freedom. And I can tell you that it does have a substantial impact on economic development because there are uh, many companies all over the world looking to see South Carolina move in the right direction, uh, the, the best direction toward progress in creating these opportunities for people to decide. And that's the reason I got involved. Uh, I was asked to chair the campaign, happy to do that, and been very encouraged by the support. Um, most South Carolinians overwhelmingly want this opportunity because it is nothing more than the question of being given the right to choose through a referendum. Uh, you don't have to have it if you don't want it in Florence or in the, in some of the smaller communities, and, and you vote that way. And that's the best of America, to let people decide and let people vote. And, Ed, I think you would agree with me. A lot of our, I'll call them liquor laws, you know, the Sunday, I mean, it, it really comes from the Prohibition era. And, right. and a lot of, I mean, I think modern South Carolina understands that some of those laws are outdated, they're antiquated, and, and I, I want to be as clear as I can about what Ed's saying. This forces nobody to do anything. This provides an opportunity, an option for those um, municipalities or counties that choose to do this. So when you when you hear that H3013 is passed, all of a sudden you're, you're mandated or forced. That's not the case, Ed. This is completely and totally at the discretion of, uh, of the business owner, the community, or the, or the county. Correct. If a small businessman wants to not open on Sunday, they don't have to do that. That's that's totally on their discretion. The, the real question becomes, why on a Sunday uh, can, uh, if you're having a party or someone's you know having a big event, um, and they suddenly realize, oh, they've forgotten X, Y, Z, um, and why would you not want to be able to give everyone the same? You can go down to the local restaurant and drink alcohol all, all day long. Hopefully they're not drinking all day long, but, um, you know, but you cannot buy it. And that is the one thing that we see people in South Carolina believe that the ban on Sunday liquor sales is based on an outdated and, and antiquated pro, prohibition era law. And they want the right to choose uh, to to do what they do on Sundays with beer and wine uh, with the liquor in the same uh, vein. And again, I, I'm a I'm a Christian. I absolutely do not want to see people going off and uh, going to the liquor stores on Sundays and 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 uh, abusing that. But the fact is, uh, if if people are going to abuse it, they'd abuse it with beer and wine. Liquor's no different, and so it's treated differently under our laws, which does cost us more as as taxpayers as well, because as taxpayers, the government has to regulate and enforce. And that cost is substantial. So um, why not just give all the liquor laws the same application, the liquor and beer and wine laws the same application, uh, less costly to government to regulate? Uh, it's also, again, the vote of the people, the vote of the community to decide whether it happens. And if you're a small businessman and you don't want to open on a Sunday uh, and sell liquor or beer or wine, you don't need to. You have the discretion to do that. Ed, last question. Cheers. Let South Carolina decide. Is this uh, group that's been created 
if there are people listening to my voice that want to be supportive, want to know more, want to be involved, how is there a website, an email, um, kind of an yes. epicenter of information? Help us understand how they yes. can become more familiar. Well, they can go to the website, letscdecide.com. I'm sorry, .org, letscdecide.org has all the information that you would need to get involved. And it's moving very quickly. There are some some really positive developments in the legislature. Uh, and I urge people to get involved if they're interested in seeing uh, the opportunity to vote and give people the right to choose. Okay. Thank you, Ed. Appreciate your time, my man. Thanks, Ken. I'd love to come on and talk about Ukraine sometime. Yeah, we'll get you back on. I mean, you and I become – we'll see one another, I think, Saturday at the event – here in Florence, and um, we'll follow up. And I, I want to get you back on here because you can um, you can engage our audience at a level that that I probably can't. So thank you for that. Yeah, I'd love to do that. Take care, Ken. Thank, thank you, Ed. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, Ed and I got to know another back in my lieutenant governor days. He was a big supporter, and um, I mean, okay, Riff says I should tell more of these stories. I don't tell because I, I mean, it's it's not for public consumption. Some of these, but but when I convinced myself that Trump had a chance to become president of the United States. I, I seeked out other folks that I trusted and, and you know, of opinions that matter to me. And I called Ed one day and I said, Ed, I, I think Trump can win. Um, what do you believe? And Ed said, let's have lunch and I'll tell you what I believe. So I rode down to Charleston and he and I went to lunch and, and out of that came a, um, I mean, we'd already had a friendship and then Ed supported me when I ran for lieutenant governor. Ed's a, uh, Ed's a former candidate for secretary of state back in the day. Uh, unsuccessfully ran as a Republican for Secretary of State, but has a, uh, a vast knowledge of South Carolina politics and the Republican Party in particular. But we sat down, and, um, and Ed, Ed, Ed had convinced himself that Trump could win. I had convinced myself that Trump could win, and, um, and he did. And, you know, Ed got far more actively involved than I did to the point that he got rewarded. I mean, if you really carry the water, and, and if you do the heavy lifting— um, there are opportunities on the other side of a successful campaign, and um, and Ed got you know made secret. So excuse me, ambassador to Switzerland. Um, I wanted to be ambassador to Costa Rica. They offered me ambassador to <laughs> Afghanistan, <laughs> <laughs> and I said thank you, but no thank you on that ambassador well, you, you, to Afghanistan. They said why? I said because I like my head exactly where it is oh, gee. on top of my shoulders. And then you appointed yourself ambassador of Pauly's Island after that. That's self-proclaimed. Okay, self-proclaimed. Back in a minute. I want to go back to this. Uh, we touched on it this morning, the Morning Consult Politico poll. This is the most recent poll. Uh, Dr. Koppman mentioned yesterday that Joe Biden's numbers are improved, and they are. I mean, was, you know, they were 41 or 2. Now they're about 45. I've seen a poll that has him at 47%, but there's a little mercy factor in here. The, 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 the general public believes when a president is put in a very complicated or difficult situation you kind of got to be on his side, no matter if he's a Republican or a Democrat. And this is the Seinfeld watching crowd. I mean, they're, they're not as informed. They're not as um, uh, aggressive in their uh, opinions or their stances. Um, they accept that they don't know as much as some others do. But when the American president appears to be in, 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 you know, in, in, in a complicated place or the complexities of the presidency are overwhelming, they tend to be more supportive. So I would argue that his numbers are up three or four or five points, depending on what poll you believe, not because he's doing any better a job, because if you knew the reasons, his numbers would probably be in decline. If somebody said, if you asked in, in this morning consult Politico poll, hey, did you know that Joe Biden 
engage or embrace this green energy plan. And as a result of that, we're not producing as much energy. Therefore, we're at what we have less leverage in our negotiation uh, with Russia. I mean, his numbers would probably go to 35 or 6 or 7 because he'd be the boogeyman when it comes to the high price of gas. Um, I said yesterday, and I'll say again, how many Americans really care about Ukraine or Russia if it didn't affect what, what we pay at the pump? I mean, I understand the human is— Well, I mean, it'd be far less. It would be a passive interest. It would be—I um, don't know a single human being with an R or D beside their name that doesn't care about their fellow man. I mean, I really don't. I mean, we care in varying degrees, and we believe that the answer to or the um, the, the 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 reaction of caring for a human human uh, fellow human beings that there's a reaction. So so there there's a there's a reaction or there's an action and then there's a reaction. The action is I care. I see these people dying and get blown up on television. What is my reaction? Well, my reaction is a lot more intense if it forces me to pay 50 or 60% more at the pump than I was, you know, a week or two ago. I mean, that's hitting me in the pocketbook. Now, now how much of that is my humanistic caring for my fellow man and how much of that is self-preservation? Let's be honest with one another. It's majority self-preservation. You still care about those people. You just don't care as much because it's not adversely affecting the way you live your life via the price you pay to fill your, your truck up with gas. The Russia-Ukraine event, let's call it an event, the invasion of, uh, of Ukraine by Russia has cost me thus far about $25. I mean, I filled my truck up with gas, and it cost me about $22, $3 more than it normally does. And I would argue I, it, it, pro- it was still more expensive because we're, we're not pursuing energy independence as we did under the Trump administration but it was not $4 a gallon. I think I paid three eighty nine dollars a gallon. cost me about $23 more to fill up. So uh, Vladimir Putin has personally cost me about $23. Uh, if I lived in Pamplico and commuted, it cost me more than that. I'd probably be a little more PO'd <laughs> than I am today because as, you know, I mean, if, if, if my wife and I were commuting from, let's say someone lives in Johnsonville and they're working in Florence and they're both burning a tank and a half of gas a week. I mean, that gets to be real money. I mean, that, that really and truly, so you are more PO'd than I am, not because people are getting blown up and killed, but because it's changing your way of life. It's in, it's impacting how you live um, your life. But we, can't, on, on we, can't really, lay, we can't lay it all at the door of uh, Putin, though. No, but it's what I'm... In the last year, I mean, it's... I mean, good night. But, it's been but up the point since I'm, inauguration well, I mean, the point I'm trying to make is, look, Putin... Can I say this on the air? I mean, can I, I'm going to say it, and if we have to drop it, we'll drop it. There's nothing Vladimir Putin likes more than the world declaring him a badass. He is his biggest and baddest when energy is expensive. I mean, the guy that has a burning desire uh, to, to, to be the macho man of all macho men. I mean, he wants to be the biggest man in every room he ever walks in. Now, he's a diminutive guy. I mean, he's not a big guy. He and Fauci could have a real tough fight with one another. Um, the difference really? in Fauci and Putin, Fauci's probably never held piano wire in his hand. I'd probably say Putin had. <laughs> Putin's probably choked another man with piano wire in his KGB days. But but the, the way he becomes bigger and badder is when energy's expensive because he has more leverage in these international negotiations. You can isolate him. You can marginalize him. But when energy's expensive, you got to deal with him. 
And, and we have, by our own actions in the Biden administration, allowed Vladimir Putin to be bigger and badder than he was during the Trump regime. You can say that Trump admired him. You can talk about what Trump said about That doesn't matter to me. I mean, this is a mathematical equation. And if we're producing enough energy to not require the purchase of 600,000, 700,000 barrels a day of Russian energy, Vladimir Putin's not as big and bad. When oil is 40 or 50 or $60 a barrel, Putin is not as likely to expand because he worries about his revenue. John McCain famously said, Russia is a gas station posing as a country. It's a, it's a first world military and a third world economy. So when you look at the morning consult polls, um, none of this says, none of this includes the Biden administration's actions as it relates to energy independence. If it were, it'd probably be 35%. I mean, if, if Joe Sixpack knew that the majority of reason the gas had gotten so expensive in the past two weeks is not Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine, it is what Biden did the day he got there by discontinuing Keystone, by stricter regulations on permitting. Uh, you heard the, uh, Jay Young, our energy expert, called in a while back and said, in some of these states, I mean, it's almost impossible to permit a new well. Um, labor issues with fracking. Why do we have labor issues with fracking? Because when you pay people to not work, guess what? A lot of Americans will take you up on that. The, the biggest concern with the fracking industry right now is not how quick we can get the, you know, the machines running. It's how fast we can find labor, qualified labor. You know, and, and we know the stories of the fracking uh, revolution or renaissance in, in South Dakota and North Dakota. And, you know, frackers, you know, blue-collar workers making $150,000, $70,000 a year. But, but here's what the, the Morning Consult Politico poll says. Biden's approval ratings are 45%. They, they follow up with several questions. When asked whether Biden is a weak leader, 54% said yes. So they believe he's a weak leader. When asked whether he's energetic, 37% said yes. So they believe he lacks energy. Here's the, here's the kicker. Is Joe Biden stable? That's a hell of a benchmark for an American president. Is Joe Biden stable? 46 said yes. 45 said no. So the only, the only conclusion to draw from this polling that Morning Consult and Politico have done, Biden's a weak leader. Biden is not energetic. Biden is not stable. But he ain't dead. And he ain't Trump. And if he's not dead, and if he's not Donald Trump, and he remains upright and breathing, the Democrats will approve of his performance. That, that is an absurdity, that the Democrats will not challenge themselves, not the Biden administration, but Democrat voters will not challenge themselves enough to admit that they voted for someone who is a weak leader, they voted for someone who lacks energy, they voted for someone who was in cognitive decline to the point that the majority of Americans, excuse me, the, 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 the bigger plurality of Americans don't believe he's stable and cognitively fit to be the leader of the free world, but they still support him as president. That is a bizarro argument to make, but that's where the Democrats are. He's not dead and he's not Trump, therefore I must support and defend his presidency now he's making it real hard because he sucks at the job 
and he's done some 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 pretty disastrous things that have led us to where to where we are today. And how hard would it be for the typical Biden voter to admit, "Hey, I was wrong," especially I, if they were a Trump hater? I mean, it, it it's difficult, even if deep down they may be regretting that well, decision. Let me ask yourself this question: How many calls have we had? that said, I believe Joe Biden's doing a good job. I mean, we got Democrats listening. Our audience is probably 95.5, probably 90.10. I mean, it's probably a 90% Republican audience, 10% a Democrat audience. Uh, we heard a lot, you know, from the Democrats when Trump was president, when, when Trump goofed this up or Trump screwed that oh, up, yeah. or Trump said something uh, that he shouldn't have said or Trump's actions were reprehensible. I mean, we heard all about that. You know, Ukraine and Russia and all these other dealings that Trump has, bankruptcies and, and girlfriends and divorces and... You know, all the, I mean, we heard that day after day after day after day. Uh, in fact, the, the mainstream media probably still talks about Trump more than they talk about the successes of Joe mm-hmm. Biden. Give me a single success that Joe Biden can say he's responsible for. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trying to be fair. I don't normally, but I'm trying to be fair for a second here. <laughs> Give me a single success that Joe Biden can say this happened because 81 million people voted me to be their president. I mean, I, I can't come up with, I mean, I can, to, I'd love to hear I can it. come up with 20 things Trump did well. I can come up with 20 things Trump didn't do well. I can come up with 20 things Biden hasn't done well. I can't come up with a single thing that he's done well. Would you like to ask a Republican that didn't vote for Trump or that actually crossed over and voted for Biden because they didn't like Trump's antics or whatever, how they feel now? Uh, I know how they feel. That's good enough for me. I mean, <laughs> Even I, if they I know never it. admit it. Well, I mean, they, they, and they don't need to admit it. I mean, you can't be a, a Republican. You can't be somebody who stands for, I don't care if you're an America First Republican or not. Let's say you're a National Review Republican, a National Review Republican, a Trump Republican, an America First Republican. There, there is no way in Hades that you believe you made a better decision. You can't come to that conclusion. You can't, you, I mean, that, that, they talk about a bridge too far. I mean, th- this guy has uh, allowed massive amounts of fentanyl. I mean, we've not even gone there about the southern border. We paid attention to the Ukrainian-Russian border. I mean, I, I saw something the other night, Bill Barr. Bill Barr's a serious man. I mean, Bill Barr supported Donald Trump up until um, the presidential election. Bill Barr said that Trump, I mean, he actually said he walked in the White House. I don't know if you saw this or not. He said, I walked into the White House and gave my letter uh, letter of resignation because I couldn't support the way the president behaved after the election, after he lost the election. And he was still arguing that I'm not going to get thrown out of here. I'm going to stay in the White House. I'm going to stay in the old office. And and Barr said that upset him. I mean, it, it, it caused him a lot of concern. You know, it, it's one thing to say I didn't lose. It's one thing to, in private conversation, say, Bill, you probably need to hang around a while because I'm going to stay here. You know, we're talking about computer malfunctions and programs and all these other sorts of things. I mean, we have found out a lot since then. I mean, th- th- there were a long time that, that what was her name? Sydney Powell, Powell and Lynn Wood. Remember, they were talking about the, um, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, there was a Venezuelan army agency. Those Dominion voting machines. Yeah, the Dominion voting machines. And I'm going to go like, what the hell? I mean, th- this is crazy talk. Now we have found out. Um, through some thorough investigation, not led by Trump. And this is where I'm critical of Trump. I mean, Trump just started talking all this crazy talk that Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood were saying about the, the programming of the machines. There was some 
you know, military officer in the Venezuelan army that had the goods. He was a part of a, um, a top secret you know, investigation and he had gained information from Dominion voting and the way they did it in some of these other communist countries about rigging elections. In other words, if Cato votes for the person running against Putin, that vote turns into a Putin vote. I mean, I don't doubt that happens, but there was no evidence at all of it happening in America. We have found out since that the majority of this was done legally. You remember me saying they stole the election fair and square? Well, I mean, Mark Zuckerberg paid for it. You know, in, in Wisconsin, we'll get into that. I mean, we've, we've not spent as much time on this Wisconsin special counsel as we probably should have. The reason, well, we got a war, you know, in Ukraine and Russia that many, many Americans want to be involved in. We hadn't heard the word COVID in a couple of weeks now. Well, I mean, I, did you see what Florida did yesterday? Florida's basically making it almost illegal to give the vaccine to a healthy kid. That's, that's pretty bizarre. I mean, Florida is so far against what we've done. And you're right, we've not heard the word COVID and we've not seen um, science. Science is gone. <laughs> I mean, science has vanished from the planet Earth like a fart in the wind. We don't see him. We, we, we've not heard from him. Um, is Fauci still alive? Was Fauci a figment of our imagination or was he a real dude? Yeah. Was he a real dude <laughs> or was he some computerized concoction that told us all to get vaccinated and wear a mask back in a minute he's talking about the roads right mm -hmm. um it, it's interesting because I've, I've tried to figure out i mean i'm trying to do maybe i can uh, get a hold of philip or jay uh philip lower jay jordan and see if they've got some sort of um a list of spending because you know we voted for a gas tax and then they dedicated some of the um some of the other money to infrastructure um how much is being spent where because because i've had a lot of people ask me hey I mean, we voted for a gas tax, and I don't notice any improvement of the roads. Um, but but you, you may live in a place where they've not gotten to working on the roads yet. I don't know. I mean, how are they prioritizing? I mean, obviously, you would imagine the busiest roads, you know, get the highest priority. But I don't know that to be the case. But I'll try my best to get a hold of a member of the General Assembly and see if they've got it listed. Maybe DOT has this on their website. I don't know. But as we've increased funding on infrastructure, how do they prioritize who's in charge of that spending and and where are the roads being improved yeah can, can we point to some successes yeah I mean, of road it, improvement th there you go i mean is is the road but between greenville and spartanburg investment. i mean is the road between greenville and spartanburg priority number one and as soon as we finish there we'll leave uh there and go to lexington or leave there and go to myrtle beach i don't know um but there should be some accounting of taxpayer dollars when it comes to increasing funding and prioritizing of spending, I'll, I'll do that. I mean, I'll make a note here to myself, and I'll try to run down a list. So we may, maybe break it down by county. You know, of all the new money and all the money spent in infrastructure, what counties are we spending the majority of that money in? So I tell you, if you look across the state of South Carolina, the roads are horrible. Well, I mean, we hear that over and over mm -hmm. again, but we adopt new funding mechanisms. And, and I've heard of a lot of people say, hey, you know, the gas tax, the roads aren't any better. I mean, the roads aren't any better today than they were before we had the increase in gas tax, um, yeah, let, let, let's evaluate further before we are um, are critical. And by the way, on a related note, the the interstates where they've cut down all the trees, especially in the median, I know that's a safety issue is, is how it was uh, described. Um, and it's, they're ugly. I mean, they don't look as nice as they used to look. I, I like them gone, though, because – the. I mean, I get that. Uh, well, the highway patrol doesn't have anything to hide behind. <laughs> that's why I like them gone. <laughs>
Interesting. Hey, can you imagine being a fly on the wall and Kamala and Joe Biden are talking? I mean, just imagine. I mean, these are the. I mean, we, one's the president. One's the president. The other is a heartbeat away from the presidency. We we believe. Oh, no, we don't. We know that one is in cognitive decline. We don't believe the other is very smart. If Kamala Harris were a white man, she'd be called dumb every day. But she's an African American female, and that becomes offensive. I mean, if you you know if you say I mean if you're a white man and you get called dumb, nobody's feelings are hurt. Not a big deal. Now now I want I want to tell you this: there are some dumb white people, and there's some smart white people. There are some dumb women, and there's some smart women. There are some dumb African Americans, and there are some smart African Americans. There are some dumb whatever, and some smart whatevers. I mean that's just the reality. But if Kamala Harris appeared to be as not so smart as she does, and were a white man. She would be ridiculed day after day after day. But I go back to think, the hypothetical. Think Dan Quayle. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Adds an E to potato. And that's his legacy. I mean, that, that's what everybody remembers Dan Quayle from. Why? Because he's a white dude. And he was a Republican. If you're a white dude and a Republican and you make a mistake that that may or may not speak to your IQ, you're dumb. The end of that. So, we're ever closer to the day Cato leaves us. True. We, we had Alec Walt. Stand we lost truth. him into fame and fortune. Cato came by and Alec. I'm sure we'll launch him to fame and fortune. So, um, yeah, you got today. Thanks. He's got tomorrow and Friday to say That's it. Um, farewell to Randy Cato. Talk tomorrow.